Virat Nariman remembers the kiss. Then he remembers the storm of bullets, the shattering of glass, sharp pain blossoming on a hundred spots on his flesh, the taste of blood in his mouth. He remembers one hail of thunderous gunfire being silenced by another. He remembers the sky, a plane in the higher atmosphere, bearing people, going somewhere special. Virat was going to take Nirmala on a holiday. What happened to her? He can't see her. He can't sense her body. He doesn't see a blinding flash of light or the faces of his victims. No tunnels. No angels. Definitely no angels. Nirmala. Nirmala. Why can he remember all these sensory details but not know what happened to her? Why? 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 He wakes up. He hears horses in the distance. There is an old man dressed like he's about to go on a jungle safari sitting next to him. He looks like a less handsome version of a tanned Santa Claus. His nose is bent. Scars made by knives crisscrosses his arms. Virat notices his arms because the man's hands bear bloody bandages. His wounds are being cleaned. You keep saying why, the old man says. What? Virat tries to say, but it comes out as a croak. He coughs uncontrollably. The man gives him some water. How many months? Virat asks. He was not tempted to ask how many days, because he knows instinctively that it would take months to recover from the trauma inflicted on him by scores of bullets that had carved into his flesh. He knows he has been shot multiple times. Five months, the man says. Virat sighs. He has clearly woken up many times before, but the cocktail of healing drugs and... What's that smell? Marijuana. It was an excellent healing agent. I am Suketu Prashad. I was a field medic and a commando with the 50th Paratrooper Regiment, the man said. The name rang a bell. The surgical strike team from the early 90s. And I owe it to Chetiar to ensure that you are able to walk out of here without leaking from the bullet wounds on your torso. I mean, it's a real testament to your genetics that you've healed so fast. Most people would have been dead in a week, the man says. Virad notices the bags of antibiotics and saline solution next to the bed. The clear liquid dripping into tubes and snaking down into his veins. 
What happened to Nirmala? Virat asks. It is time you jumped onto that. The man says, avoiding the question and pointing to a wheelchair. <laughs> Suketu struggles to load all six feet five inches of Virat onto the wheelchair. Pain arcs through the channels that run up and down Virat's body. His bones feel unstable. His flesh feels like they have been held together with superglue. Raw and throbbing agony makes him bite his lips as he sinks into the chair. There is a desire to move, to progress, to transform. But what he hears next extinguishes that flame in his soul. Suketu rolls Virat out onto the veranda of the farmhouse made from red bricks and timber trimmings. A farm in the outskirts of Sholapur. Sugarcane on one side as far as I can see, like a green army waving scythes. On the left is a shed with an old jeep and tools hanging on metal racks nailed to wooden walls. There is a water pump outside, dripping constantly. To the right is a corral with three beautiful horses. The man hands Virat a cup of coffee. Drink it, he says. It is from Kurg. I order in the beans and uh, grind it myself. It's good. Nirmala, Virat says, accepting the cup. She passed. She took most of the bullets to her head. The man says. That's why Virat didn't remember her. There was nothing left of her. Chetiar's men arrived in time and took out the assassination squad working for people he called the Syndicate. He saved you, but your girlfriend was long gone. I am sorry to break this news to you. Virat watches the horses standing still in the late afternoon breeze. They don't make a noise. He drops the coffee mug on the floor. It shatters like his psyche. The thought of revenge that would have once propelled him now screams feebly under his bandaged flesh. He realizes that he had loved Nirmala, that she was the only person other than Anya that he had ever truly loved that he never told her he loved her. Or did he? He couldn't remember. Your ex-wife is under police protection and your son, well, no one knows, Suketu says. The information registers somewhere, but a numbness is creeping into his inner sanctum. Virat wants to care. He wants to go and protect what is left of his family. But the sun has set on his fury. The darkness creeps into his eyes. He passes out. He keeps staring at those damn horses. Hmm... 
Yep. Yep. Suketu says into the phone. Chetiar is on the line inquiring about his friend Virat. It has been a month since Suketu broke the news about Nirmala to Virat. His physical strength has returned. But he refuses to walk. Just sits there. His will is broken, I think. Mm, I, I will keep at it. The man kept saying. Suketu puts the phone down and approaches Virat from behind. He is not happy about the fact that he has failed to cut through this man's grief. A man who is now a shadow of his former self. A man who now wears a crown of wavy hair and a bushy beard sprinkled with grey highlights. Previously, vacant stares from Virat had greeted Suketu's attempts to inspire him. But Suketu was going to keep trying. He was a paratrooper. They were not made of melted butter. He didn't bother asking Virat if he wanted dinner. Like every other night, he rolled the wheelchair to the dining table and rested him in front of a plate of chapati and aloo chole. You must be getting tired of the same meal every night. But it's good. The sabzi is from my farm. Virat ate slowly, and he stared at the swirls made by varnish on the wooden dining table. You know how I got these scars on my hands. It was a cross-border infiltration mission. My parachute malfunctioned and I crashed into a barn in the heart of the enemy territory. They captured and then tortured me for two months straight to get answers. But the men of 50th are a tough breed. <laughs> we don't crack easy. Oh, or that's what they say anyways. Because even though I didn't give them any intel, I was ready to die. I wasn't looking for ways to escape. I felt like I had done my duty. All I got for it was pain. And now that I had refused to rat... My commitment to my regiment and my country was done. Play the bugle. Pin the medal on that Indian flag and drape it on my coffin. <laughs> uh, uh, then one fine day, this angel turns up. She's in her twenties, a beautiful woman. She unties me, says... Our army is needed. People like me are needed. Our army, our nation is their only salvation. Suketu takes a sip of water and watches Virat. She says to me, Your work is not done, soldier. I looked at myself. Cuts and bruises everywhere. Missing teeth and nails torn off with pliers. I must have looked like hell. I did not look like a soldier, more like a corpse. But that is what she said to me. Your work is not done, soldier. Something burned in me again. 
the thought that I am needed. My skills are needed to perform one last deed of valor for this girl and her people. My country needs me. Virat stops eating. Suketu can see that he is paying attention now, even though he doesn't meet the eye of the teller of the tale. I crawled out of there, made my way into the forest. Well, the rest you can guess, because otherwise I wouldn't be sitting here telling you the story. Vinat sighs. His eyes have lost their vacant stare. Now there is emotion, sadness. Virat, what I want to tell you is this. You are not done. Your work is not done, soldier. I know you have gained enough strength to get off that chair and walk out of here. So walk out of here. Embrace your duty, my son. The phone rings. Suketu speaks into the phone for a bit and then hands it over to Virat. Virat places the phone on his ears. Viru, I am so sorry about Nirmala. I'm sorry I haven't spoken to you in a while. I just didn't have the heart to hear your broken voice, Chetir says. You have nothing to apologize for. You have my heartfelt thanks. Virat utters his first words in months. I have news, Chetir says. The syndicate has reached out to me. They want to meet with you. You can't refuse the meeting, because if you do, they will kill your wife. There is a pause, and he hears Chetiar swallowing. They will kill me as well for saving your life, if you don't take the meeting. Organizing this parlay is my get-out-of-jail card, Chetiar says. I hear you. Say yes. I will be ready, Virat says. That night, Suketu hears the electric trimmer being used in the bathroom. He smiles as he drifts off into sleep. Virat is clean-shaven, looking like a soldier waiting for orders to butcher enemy combatants. Virat has lost his muscle tone, but he is still a formidable man. I need some weights and a gun, Virat says. Getting back into the swing of things, hey? Suketu says with a smile. The garage has a temporary gym. Some barbells, dumbbells, I, I think a pull-up bar. Back from the days when I used to exercise, 
The gun, well, I will have to dig it up from a secret spot. It is a pea shooter, a Glock. I'm sure you wouldn't use it in your line of work, but to get a bit of aiming practice in, it'll be just fine, I think. Suketu says, without nods. A month passes without any news from Chetiar. A month of functional training. Running, squats, shoulder presses, push-ups, deadlifts. Back-breaking work around the farm. You can come back and train here any time you want. <laughs> Suketu says jokingly, gazing at the improvements Virat made to the farm. New fencing, new irrigation channels, three new sheds, and a larger corral for the horses. The killer has a soft spot for horses. When you are done with your duty, you can come back here, son, and take over the farm. I will be done by then, buried underneath that mango tree over there, Suketu says. Virat is not entirely averse to the idea. To avoid spooking the horses, the hitman hikes up a nearby hill and practices his firing on old beer cans from Suketu's drinking days. His shot is a bit off during the first few weeks. Nirmala's memories flood into his veins, throwing him off his aim. But then the killer instinct returns. The mind becomes the arm, becomes the gun. The eye becomes the arm, becomes the blade. Man and weapon, united in purpose to become a lethal weapon. He is ready, and he is impatient. His body still hurts, but he is ready to do his duty. Whatever that might be. One Sunday afternoon, Virat jogs down the hill with a 30 kilo backpack and enters the farmhouse to find Suketu nodding and umming and eyeing into the fawn. Virat unloads the pack and sinks into the couch. His hands press together in anticipation. His eyes reading Suketu's lips. Suketu gets off the phone and says, It's time. You took your sweet time, didn't you? Chetiar says jokingly as Virat re-enters the car after visiting his sick uncle Arjun at his home. I like to seek his blessings before I embark on a big gig. He taught me the trade. He is my guru. He is like a father to me, Virat says. How is he? Chetiar asks as he puts the car into gear. He is dying, Virat says. They drive on in the direction of Ravina's home. The syndicate had organized for the meeting to take place in the presence of his ex-wife. They will have conditions, Chetiar says. You know this. No such thing as a free pass with this lot. 
I expect as much, Virat says. Virat is back to his full strength. His black t-shirt struggles to conceal his ripped physique. Chetiar is both scared and delighted to see the intensity in his friend's eyes. Shuketu looked after you well, Chetiar says after throwing a glance at Virat's killer body. Virat nods. He purses his lips as he remembers farewelling his carer. The old man with a thousand army tales. I was serious. You come back and take over this farm from me when you're done. The horses would love that too, Suketu had said as he placed his hand on Virat's head to give him his blessings. Virat could still feel the weight of the old man's calloused hands on his forehead. They arrive at their destination. Chetiar parks his car in front of the two-story house and looks around. I don't see any cars out front. Do you think this is a trap? Chetiar questions. Most assuredly. Virat says, turning to Chetiar. Chetiar swallows in fear. I want to thank you for everything you have done for me. But I must ask you for one last favor. Virat says. It has been my pleasure, Chetiar says. My friend. Without nods, I need a gun. Chetiar hesitates for a second before opening the glove compartment. He pulls out a Beretta PX4 Storm. Virat smiles. He loves the fast precision triggers and the sturdy grip on these babies. Chetiar hands it over to Virat with a look of concern. I want you to leave now. Whatever happens here, whatever is going to happen to me, I don't want you to be a part of it. Not anymore. The syndicate has let you live for now, but they can change their mind. I don't want to be responsible for your death. Virat says. I, Chetiar says. No arguments. Virat responds. Virat steps out of the car and looks at his former home, which now slumbers in the afternoon heat like a den of painful memories. Yes, boss. He is here. Just stepped out of the car. The man in the front passenger seat says into the phone. The driver of the car that is observing Chetiar's vehicle rubs his hand gleefully and says, I can't wait for him to discover the surprise we have organized inside the house. Shut the fuck up, Ramu. The boss is on the phone. 
the man holding the phone says with a look of displeasure. Hampus, everything was laid out according to your wish. The man says before switching off the phone. He slaps the driver hard across the face. You fucking idiot. Don't pull that shit on me again. Sorry, Bella. I was just expressing the inner joy in my soul. Bilu let out a long sigh. Ramu, do you know why you are in the employ of the syndicate? Because you are as good at using a knife to cut up a human body as I am. That is your only worth as a human being. No one, especially the boss, cares about your inner joy. Bilu glances at the rear car seat and notices a scrunched up copy of a book titled Living Your Best Life. Written by an IIM graduate who sold his Ferrari, gave up shares in his million dollar unicorn startup and was now teaching yoga in the banks of the river Ganga. Now I know why you talk the way you do. Stop reading this shit during your breaks. You will get dysentery in your brain, Bilu said. The two men watched Virat enter the home. Bilu smiled. It was his way of expressing the joy in his soul. Virat pulls out the Beretta and readies it in his grip before placing his hand on the door. It wasn't locked. He pushes it open. A deadly silence greets him. He looks to the left. Perched on top of the living room coffee table was an oversized framed photograph of Anya smiling beautifully. It was decorated with flowers and balloons. A giant banner above it read, Welcome home, Daddy. Virat bit down a wave of sorrow as he scanned the rest of the room. He looked ahead. A trail of clothes and makeup items were strewn on the carpeted passageway that led to the dining room. He moved forward, swiveling left, then right, and back again, ready to pump bullets into anyone who thought it was a wise move to ambush one of the greatest contract killers in India. The items on the floor belonged to Nirmala. Her undergarments, the expensive lipstick he had purchased for her during their London holiday, her birthday gift, a necklace of blue corals with gold trimmings was draped on the lighting fixture on the wall. Virat bit his lips and drew blood. He was a man used to butchering human bodies, both live and dead. Yet he could tell he was not prepared for what was coming next. He knew it in the depths of his soul. The smell wafting in from the dining room was disgusting. The dining table was set up for a dinner for six. Steaming hot curries in copper vessels, naan in straw baskets 
and a big glass bowl of rice and raitha graced the surface of the table. Seated at the head of the table was the ruined, embalmed body of Nirmala. There was very little left of her head. Her neck and chest were ravished by stitches and black bullet holes like craters on the surface of the moon. The syndicate had clearly procured her body from the morgue. Ravina's decapitated head was set atop a large pineapple that served as the decorative centerpiece of the dining table. Her eyes were rolled up, exposing its whites. Her blue mouth bore cuts and bruises. Her ears were clipped away, indicating extreme torture. The flesh at the base of her neck was jagged and ruined. It was clear to Virat that they had used a serrated machete to separate her head from her torso. Slow, painful and messy, and done on purpose. Inside Ravina's mouth was a tiny Nokia mobile phone. A yellow posted note was stuck on Ravina's head. It said, Call me. Virat bends down, trying to fight a wave of nausea. Grief forms into a ball of heat and threatens to explode his head. The smell of rotting flesh, embalming fluid and delicious food had turned his former home into an exotic charnel house. He spits out some bile on the floor, staining it yellow before rising and wiping his mouth. He takes three breaths. Then comes an angry cry which he suppresses immediately. Virat picks the phone out of Ravina's mouth carefully and dials the only number stored in the contact section. Mr. Nariman, how is the welcome home party? Virat doesn't say anything back. You must be really enjoying the company of your guests and the excellent food. So much so that it has made you speechless, eh? <laughs> Who are you? Virat asks. That is none of your business. But you can refer to me as your father. Your father you didn't know you had. Who now owns your ass? <laughs> yes. Virat grunts in pain and anger. Listen, your wife had to go because she was a real pain. What's the expression? A thorn in our flesh. I mean, you would appreciate the gesture, given she was responsible for your daughter's death and all. You, Virat says. But the man ignores him and continues speaking. And your girlfriend, well, collateral damage, I'm afraid. We tried to finish you off, but you made her your shield, he said. I did not, without growls. Shh, 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 
No, Virat. No, 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 no. You bark and growl when I tell you to bark and growl. I don't think you get it. You are my bitch now. Virat glances at Nirmala's body with sadness. As the head of the syndicate, I am prepared to show some benevolence towards you and your junkie son. That is what we are here to talk about. The terms of a business proposal that will keep you and whatever is left of your pathetic family alive and kicking. Virat pulls out a chair and sits on it, phone pressed hard against his ears. Are you prepared to listen, or do you want to die right now? The man asks. I am listening, Virat says. Good, good boy. Or do you prefer a good dog? <laughs> it fills me with joy to see you like this, Virat. You are a legend in the business. You have indirectly worked for us in the past. You just didn't know about it. We are like the darkest shadow in the darkest night. Anyways, we are aware of the situation with your son, that uh, useless drug addict. The man said. His name is Praveen, Virat says. Whatever, we know where he is and we can hand him over to you unharmed if you perform a hit for us, he says. How do I know if I can trust you? Virat says. You don't. Wait, why are you even trying to query our intentions? Do I need to remind you again, big man? You are at our mercy now. You are the shit stuck on our boots. So just shut up and listen. You have railroaded our sex trafficking network. Literally taken a machete to the whole thing. It's gone. We have to start afresh. And for us to do that, there is one last vestige of that old system that we need to take care of. The man on the phone pauses for dramatic effect. The accountant, the man who did the numbers, ferried millions of rupees that flowed into our coffers because some men in this country are sick fucks. We don't want to be seen as responsible for taking out people who are loyal to us. Not a good look, especially when we need to hire people from top to bottom to get the girls from their safe homes to our secret brothels all over again. That's right. We are going to rebrand and restart the business that you thought you had burned to the ground. Without sighs into the phone. You get my flow, man. You don't get to win. Ever. You are going to do our dirty work by bumping off the accountant at his daughter's wedding. In return, you get to live. You get your son. And you get to work for us for the rest of your life. Virat wipes the beads of sweat on his forehead. 
What do you think, Nariman? Will it be a yes? Or would you like your son's stiff, lifeless body to join you at the amazing lunch party? <laughs> Tell me this. How's the smell of failure in that dining room? All the women you fucked and loved now staring lifelessly at malai kofta and garlic naan. <laughs> oh, that was good. That was good. He laughs raucously, amused at his cruel joke. I will take your silence as a yes. The details will arrive on this phone. The front door suddenly bursts open. Virat pulls out his gun and aims it down the passageway. It was Chetiar bearing a Glock handgun. I thought I asked you to leave, Virat says to him angrily. How could I? I was worried. I waited and when I didn't see you for a while, I decided to come in. Is everything okay? Chetiar asks. No, Virat says. Chetiar steps forward. Stop. I don't want you to come in here, Virat says. We will speak in the car. Twenty minutes into their drive, Virat opens up to Chetiar about the horrifying diorama in the dining room and the syndicate's offer. Chetiar whimpers as he listens to his friend. He couldn't comprehend how Virat could be calm as he recounted the terrifying ordeal. I think they are bluffing about Praveen. I know how good he is at disappearing, Virat says. Think about it, Viru. This might be the only chance at peace you have with this mob. Just accept the deal, Chetiar says. They're playing at something else, my friend. And I'm not going to let them win. Please do me a favor. Use all your networks, all your connections, and help me find my son. Please, do this one last thing for me, Virat says. Virat, but... Chetiar begins to say. Virat raises his hand and Chetiar stops arguing. What are you going to do next, Viru? Chetiar asks. I am going to a wedding to kill an accountant. The festive tube lights had turned night into day, and the colourful LED bulbs on trees resembled irradiated fruit that glowed green and red and orange. A 15-member drum band, accompanied by a few musicians who played wind instruments, belted out old Bollywood numbers like Tu Cheese Badi Hai Must Must. A raucous, joyous throng of revellers clogged the suburban street, blocking traffic 
and making everyone's life miserable in the name of celebrating someone's marital bliss. The fat groom was cruising on the back of a bedecked horse on the way to his bride's home, which was two streets away from his present location. Every time he jumped up and down to the rhythm of the celebratory music, the poor animal wept. Virat wished he had the liberty to kill the asshole for hurting the animal. His sole duty, his singular focus, was dedicated to killing the groom's future father-in-law, the accountant. His mark donned a white safari suit which was inappropriate for the weather. The man was sweating so profusely, it looked like he had taken a dip in a pool after getting dressed up for the occasion. The accountant was in his late forties, balding, with a bulbous nose and thick bushy eyebrows where birds could nest. The accountant was at the head of a welcoming party at the gates of the two-storied, freshly painted and gaudily decorated palatial home. Clearly, this was a backyard wedding. Virat could imagine the beautifully landscaped backyard with a pool and ornate pergolas that only people who made millions out of trafficking women could afford. There would be an elevated stage for the DJ and Bollywood singers, meat and veg buffet counters, shady alcoves that housed 20 kinds of whiskey from Scotland, no less. It was a shame the accountant wouldn't get to enjoy any of it. Virat felt the small syringe containing the poison in his pocket. The kill would have to wait for a few minutes. First, he needed to pay a visit to the man in charge of the firecrackers. Virat had been watching the place for days, looking for the best kill zones and exit points. He spent hours drawing up a perfect plan. But he was not always beholden to them. He knew that on the day, fate had a way of throwing up surprises, both good and bad. He estimated that the bad luck would be organized by the syndicate. This was not a straightforward hit. The good came in the form of an overly enthusiastic 18-year-old, twice-removed cousin of the bride who was handing out firecrackers to attendees to employ once the groom had dismounted and the horse had been sent away, lest it should get spooked. Virat was enthusiastic about the possibilities this presented. Billu and Ramu watched on as Virat moved around the crowd. The two thugs smiled at each other, feeling a sense of superiority over the greatest contract killer in Indian history. They had been tailing him for days and were moments away from gutting him once he had killed the mark for their overlords in the syndicate. Billu had to agree that this was a masterstroke on the part of the syndicate. Use the killer to mop up the final mess and then dispatch him to an early grave. The entire sordid tale of the failure of their human trafficking chain, version 1, wiped clean from the annals of history. Billu had gone over the plan with Ramu several times over the last few days. As soon as Virat jabbed the accountant with the chemical that would induce a massive heart attack, the two servants of the syndicate would emerge from the thronging crowd, knives concealed. Once they were behind Virat, 
Billu would stick his knife in the base of Virat's skull and Ramu would slash open the groin region in the crook of his leg to damage the femoral artery. They had clear orders to ensure that Virat would have no chance to resurrect himself like a new age Lazarus. He was not the kind of man you left behind wounded to fight another day. I'm going to buy the book written by that madam who comes on the morning TV show, Adamu said. Billu rolled his eyes. Which one? The seven effective habits of successful people, Adamu said. You are never going to find peace in your life if you keep up this reading habit of yours. It plants ideas in your head. Notions of grandeur. You start thinking you are Abdul Kalam, Billu said. Ramu nodded, as if he was considering Bilu's advice. Bilu continued, Be like me. I do a good taste job. Have vada pao from Pushpak fast food stall in Dongri place. Go home. Watch some midnight masala videos. Relax using my hands, or if I'm really in the mood, head over to Rani's guest house to enjoy with the girls. I mean, it's a perfect life. I have never felt the need to read about other people's life and be like them. But Billu, Ramu began saying. Stop, Billu interrupted him. Virat was on the move. Billu rubbed his hand together and stretched. I will give you more life advice after we kill this fucker. You got your knife ready? Ramu smiled and nodded. Virat, who was making a beeline for the accountant, had suddenly taken a detour to talk to a lad handing out firecrackers. While this was odd, Billu didn't make too much of it. Billu's hands itched. It was always a good sign. It meant he was going to find success tonight. Remember Saleh? I get the neck, you get the crotch. Billu said to Ramu. Virat tapped on the firecrackers inside his pocket and smiled. Even in the middle of soul-crushing grief, he was glad he could relish the thrill of the kill. He was about to unleash mayhem. He was certain after years of soul-searching that he was put on earth to do so. The accountant, who licked his fingers as he counted thousands of soiled notes generated by illegal brothels across the country, deserved to die. Virat wondered whether he tasted the tears of hapless women in those notes including those of his precious Anya. Virat moved closer to the welcoming party, consisting of the accountant and his family members, who were now fending off the crowd that had swelled as the groom approached on his horse. There was a fair bit of pushing and shoving, Virat melted into a cloak of anonymity provided by the ocean of celebrants. He swam through the bodies like a shark seeking its prey. 
the perfect moment was about to manifest. But before that moment could come, an old man approached him and said, Ah, Chitranjan Babu, long time no see. I think you have the wrong person, Virat said in frustration. Are you not Sushila Ben's son, the lad who is a mining engineer in Odisha? The old man said. No, Virat said, casting a furtive eye at the location where he needed to be at to deliver the kill shot. Then a younger man arrived and pulled on the old man's shoulder. He said, Chacha ji, what are you doing here? The caterers are asking for you. Come on. The old man nodded at the young man and then looked back apologetically at Virat. Sorry, I am needed in the kitchen area. It's okay, Chachaji. Make sure there is enough sugar in the jalebis, Virat said. Virat watched the man leave and then speared hastily through the crowd. He was determined to get to the kill point on time. Virat was now right behind the accountant. He was close enough to do the deed. The perfect moment was close. The horse snorted and shook its head as it came to a stop in front of the welcome party. Their eager eyes and warm smiles were primed to delight the groom. The garlands and fruits and rose water dispensers in their hand ready to be deployed once the young man dismounted. Virat lit the cracker. He then pulled out the syringe. He threw the cracker at the foot of the horse and jabbed the needle into the accountant's left buttock at the same time. The fluid oozed into the criminal's flesh. The cracker burst with a loud sound, spooking the animal and causing it to rear up. The groom tumbled off his mount and landed hard on the ground. Shocked at the sight, the accountant failed to notice the sharp pain in his back. The frightened horse ran straight at the welcoming party, knocking down people. Pandemonium broke out. Bilu and Ramu emerged from the crowd with their knives drawn. Virat was standing near the accountant, about to deliver the payload. This signaled the beginning of the final phase of the operation. They both felt the surge of excitement as they clutched their knife handles harder. Damu pulled on Bilu's collar. Bilu, uh, I forgot where you wanted me to strike. Was it the neck or the groin? Damu said. Bilu was about to whack his accomplice on the back of his head when the firecracker went off and all hell broke loose. The accountant had collapsed, clutching his chest, and the groom was crushed to death by the heavy footfalls of the same people who were celebrating his special day moments ago. Virat, who was standing before their eyes in a black shirt and cargo pants mere seconds ago, had now disappeared. Bilu and Ramu panicked as they scanned the fleeing crowd, hoping for a glimpse of their deadly mark.
Virat watched his two would-be assassins from some distance away. Years ago, a rival gang had sent a contract killer who had trained with some of the best intelligence agencies in the world to track and kill Virat. It took half a day for Virat to spot him. That man ended up in a bathtub, his life breath bubbling into the watery grave. These two clowns who looked like they had walked out of an 80s movie fight scene were not exactly slick when it came to surveillance operations. Virat had made contingencies in his plan for dealing with them and he was about to deliver some surprises. And to make things easier for him, the two idiots split up. He served the swarming mob of people to sneak up to Damu, who was surveying his surroundings, open-mouthed, with a terrified look in his eyes. Virat enjoyed the fear at large in his victim's body language. The fear and the knowledge that Ramu had no clue of his imminent death. Uncle Arjun taught him knife techniques from an ancient text called Esgrima Criola, the definitive text of South American fencing. His uncle would sit with him for hours reading the textbook and then he would help him practice the drills on a banana tree. Once Virat had mastered the moves by shadow fencing for hundreds of hours, they sparred with a live weapon. There were so many scars on Virat's wrists from those painful lessons. Know the way of the wrist and you will have mastery over your enemy's life, Uncle Arjun used to say. Virat crept right up to Damu and clamped both his hands around his enemy's wrist which held the weapon. He cranked the joint up and to the back, causing extreme pain and shutting out the nerves. Damu was disarmed and the knife fell into Virat's arm. With the swiftness of a lightning strike, Virat placed the blade over Damu's heart and pressed down on the butt of the knife with both hands. All of Damu's dreams died in an instant. The man who dreamt of opening a Reiki parlor to serve his tourists in Darjeeling crumpled to the ground. Bilu had done his best to find Vidat, but he soon realized that the man had used the cover of the fleeing crowds to escape his clutches. Shit, 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 Bilu said, slapping the flat part of his blade against his thighs. The streets were starting to empty out. The wails of the bride and relatives clutching the dead bodies of the accountant and the groom filled the air. Police and ambulance sirens howled in the distance. Bilu sheathed his knife. At least the accountant was dead. They would deal with Virat afterwards. Where is that idiot Ramu? Bilu wondered. He scanned the scene once more. This time his eyes fell upon the collapsed dead body of his colleague, lying in an ever-expanding pool of blood. Shit, this can only mean one thing, he thought. Billu ran for his life, without bothering to check on his erstwhile companion. He needed to get to his car. Billu prayed to his family deity and promised he would never drink or pay for prostitutes again. 
His tongs, which featured yellow pineapples and pink flamingos, slapped loudly against the asphalt as he ran for his ambassador car. Please, God, please protect me, he said. Billu could now see his car. Every meter he had to conquer to get to his vehicle raised his heart rate. He looked over his shoulder. He looked to the sides. No sign of Virat. The suspense was unbearable. Bilu pulled out his knife as he neared the car. He waved the knife around like a madman, creating a defensive barrier of sweeping blade strikes. He got into the car, locked the door, placed the knife on his lap and tried to bring down his elevated heart rate. He was thirsty. He needed a big drink. Bilu turned around and placed his hand on the back seat to look for the bottle of mineral water. His hand found Virat's muscly thighs. The killer's silhouette was perfectly hidden in the shadows, so much so that Bilu couldn't even detect the shape of the gun that was leveled at his head. Virat would have tortured him if Bilu possessed valuable information. But he knew this was another mistake on the part of the syndicate. They had underestimated him again by sending inexperienced killers for hire to relegate him to the pages of mob history. Or maybe there was a logic to it. Maybe they thought two sneaky knife-bearing killers could do what a large squad of assassins with machine guns couldn't deliver. And there was another reason for what Virat was about to do next. Earlier today, Chetyar had come back with information that confirmed Virat's beliefs. The syndicate did not know Praveen's location. Most importantly, Chetyar's source was able to do one better and find out where Praveen was holed up. Virat was prepping for the endgame. He was going to find his son and entrust him in the safe and capable hands of old friends. It was time to clear up all of the syndicate's misconceptions. It was time to go to war. Virat shot Bilu at point-blank range, and the windscreen was suddenly transformed into a painting of flesh and blood. I cannot protect you anymore, Virat. Chetiar said on the phone. You have now declared open war on them. I know, Virat responded, carefully maneuvering the gypsy around the portholes on the weather-beaten road. He had driven three days straight to arrive at the breadbasket of India. A once prosperous agricultural marvel, the state was now home to drug traffickers and their victims. Both died in equal numbers and rotted in undignified graves in the home of India's Green Revolution. Driving through economically depressed and mournful-looking towns, peopled by drug-addled youngsters staggering about like zombies, did nothing to improve Virat's mood. But he was learning to be thankful for the small victories. I want to thank you for finding Praveen, Virat said into the phone. You can thank me one more time. I found out about the man who spoke to you. The man who leads the syndicate. 
Chetiar said. Virat's steel grip tightened on the steering wheel as anger burned bright red behind his eyes. Pepe Tirumal de Souza, born to a Portuguese father and a Goan mother, cut his teeth training arms to the LTT and the Mujahideen. That is what brought him to the attention of the syndicate. He was their chief arms pusher for decades. When the syndicate got out of the guns and the missiles game to focus on drugs, gambling and human trafficking, Pepe was sidelined by the then leader, who promptly found out you don't fuck with the man. I believe the unfortunate leader was found crucified to his Monet painting in his Mumbai penthouse. He is dangerous, Virat. I hope you know what you're getting into, Chetiar said. Like I said, I don't want you to be involved with me anymore, Virat said. Well, I will convey as much when I meet them today, Chetiar said. You're meeting them today? Virat asked. Yep. I think they want to ensure that I know nothing of you and that I have their loyalty. I'm going to say a fat no to the first and an enthusiastic yes to the second, Chetiar said. Watch your back, Chetiar, Virat said with concern. You need to listen to your own advice, my friend, Chetiar said. I will keep this phone with me till you confirm you are okay after the meeting with them, Virat said. Oh, there is no need, Chetiar said. I was not asking for your opinion. Virat said. Call me after the meeting. Good luck, my friend. I hope you find Praveen in a half-decent shape, Chetiar said. I hope so, my friend. Virat said as he pushed down the pedal to race towards the drug den where Praveen was holed up. Chetiar had to wear a black bag over his head before he was taken in an Audi A4 to the outskirts of Indraprastha city. They stopped by the side of the highway, which cut through dry bushland. Electricity poles were the only sign of civilization on this parched stretch of geography. It reflected the harshness of the hot sun that lay into it without mercy, day in and day out. He was forced out of the car by a burly man and pushed into the front seat of another Porsche European car which was waiting for them. Instead of heading down the highway, the car turned into a straight, unending stretch of unpaved road that took them deeper into the arid plains that dominated the region. There was a constant noise of something being dragged behind the car. A grating sound generated by an object sliding over the surface of the gravel road. You can take off the mask now, a voice said from the rear seat. Chetiar took off his mask and surveyed his immediate surroundings. A muscly hairy man in a black suit gripped the steering as he peered through the dirt cloud thrown up by the racing wheels. A man in a navy blue suit was seated at the back. He was clean-shaven and had a Botox plump, creepy smile plastered across his face. His long silvery hair was tucked in a ponytail, and it was evident that plastic surgery had been used liberally to de-age his features. 
The audible flip-flapping trailing the car bothered Chetia more than the assortment of freaks he was trapped with in the car. What is that sound? Chetia asked. I keep telling these idiots to service the car regularly, but they don't listen, the man said. Then he moved forward in his seat and breathed on Chetia's neck. It seems no one listens to me these days, the man said in a disappointed voice. May I know who I am speaking to? Chetia asked. The man sat back on his seat and placed one of his legs over the other, radiating an aura of authority. The boss of bosses, the emperor of the syndicate. Call me whatever you like. Okay, Chetir said. You wanted to talk to me about Virat, so talk. He has caused our organization further problems. Do you know of his whereabouts? The man asked. No, I don't know where he is, Chetir said. I made the mistake of trying to save him last time, not knowing that the syndicate was involved, and I paid the price for it. I believe I have atoned for my mistakes by surrendering one of my prized territories to you. I also found where Virat was holed up and guided him to you. I have paid my tax. I don't want to jeopardize my business anymore, Chetir said. Hmm, a well-rehearsed answer, the man said with a guffaw. He rubbed his hands together furiously and clapped loudly, sending a chill down Chetiar's spine. So, you are telling me, after helping us organize the parley with that dickhead, you did not help him in any manner, the man said. Yes, that is exactly what I am saying, Chetiar said. The sound coming from the rear of the car continued to grate on his senses. Chetiar asked again, What is that sound? Chetiar, we really appreciate everything you have done for us. So I don't want to sound ungrateful when I say, We are very disappointed in you. But I'm not going to sit here like a nincompoop and tolerate your suggestion that you are not actively helping him. We know you called the great Vidar Nariman this morning. And thanks to your contact, we are now tracing his movements. His death is only a matter of hours away, the man said. Chetiar gulped audibly. The man in the rear seat gazed out of the window and squinted. He then let out a big sigh. You know what I hate about this place? It is not near the ocean. My father loved the ocean. He used to say, Pepe, the ocean is bright. It is pregnant with so many possibilities. You can gaze upon the horizon and know that it leads to distant lands and great adventures. This bushland we are racing through, it's a place of death and surrender. There is no hope here, no horizons to aspire to, just miles of dirt and dried grass and petrified trees, Pepe said. Chetir was sweating like the insides of the car was on fire. Stop the car, Pepe said. The driver slammed the brakes. Get out, Pepe said.
Chetiar hesitantly opened the door and stepped out. The dust raised by the convoy settled, and Chetiar scanned the barren wasteland that he was sure would become his eternal resting place in a matter of moments. Tears welled in his eyes. He lost control of his bowels. I have a parting gift for you, Chetiar. Have a look behind the car, Pepe said. Chetiar gingerly walked to the rear of the car. The constant noise that was annoying him was generated by a body that was dragged along by the car. There was no mistaking whose body it was, thanks to some of the clothing that was still intact on the cadaver. Chetiar screamed in horror at the shredded mass of flesh lying before him. Then a bullet silenced his scream the shot echoing across the parched, wind-burned landscape. When Virat pulled into the parking lot of the dilapidated primary school, there was an ambulance parked in front of it. The school compound featured two rectangular buildings that had holes in its white brick walls and was missing parts of its roofing. Shit stains, rude drawings and a confusing jumble of damaged posters graced its facade. Virad ran to where the paramedic was working on a young man lying on the floor at the entrance of one of the buildings. A small group of junkies had lined up to watch the proceedings. The young man had clearly overdosed. Please don't let this be Praveen, Virat thought. As he got closer, he saw the unkempt afro hairstyle of the downed patient. Praveen had similar hair. Virat nervously squeezed both his hands. No, 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 he said. He pushed the gawking drug addicts from his path and bent down next to the paramedic. What do you want? The paramedic said. My son, Virat said. Is he your son? The paramedic asked, pointing a gloved hand to his patient's face. Your son is dead, man, a junkie said from behind him. The same man proceeded to clap and started laughing like a deranged hyena. Virat looked at the face of the young man who was in distress. It wasn't Praveen. Suddenly, the patient started convulsing wildly, form spurting out of his mouth. Get out of my way, the paramedic said as he headed to the ambulance to grab life-saving equipment. Virat stood up and watched, his powerful hands covering his mouth. The paramedic tried injecting medication to counter the effects of the drugs, and when that didn't seem to restore the patient's vitals, he started performing CPR and mouth-to-mouth. All the while, the noisy junkie continued ranting and raving. In a matter of moments, life faded from the young man's face. Even Joel's from the defibrillator couldn't save him. Now well, another one to cart to the morgue, 
the paramedic said, standing up and removing his medical gloves. What a fucking waste, the man continued. I take it he's not your son, the paramedic said, turning to Vidat. No, Vidat said. No, not his son, not his son, <laughs> not his son, not his son. The junkie roared with laughter. Virat rushed at the lunatic, grabbed his filthy collar and smashed his left hand into the miscreant's jaw. He crumpled to the floor like a sack that had just been emptied. Someone clapped in the distance. Virat turned to the owner of the voice with a raised fist and said, Do you want some of this too? Oh, how the great Virat Nariman has fallen, now reduced to a two-bit muscle for hire who beats up junkies, Praveen said. He was dressed in a filthy pair of jeans and a weathered long-sleeve hoodie. Praveen, Virat said. The youngster pulled his hood down, revealing a pale, scratch-ridden face, and addressed his father arrogantly. It's me, old man. Congratulations, you have found me. But I am not coming with you, you fucking monster. Virat's mobile phone chimed. He was tempted to ignore it, but then he remembered that he had asked Chetia to give him a bus after the meeting with the syndicate. Virat was worried about the whole business. It was unlikely that the syndicate would bump off the head of a crime family and jeopardize their interests. But then again, the syndicate did not respect the codes of their business. They were the Goliaths of the Indian crime empire. The mobile issued another notification sound. You heard me, man. I'm not coming with you, Praveen reiterated. Calm the hell down, Praveen, Virat said as he glanced at the phone. A photograph slowly downloaded onto the screen. It featured the severed head of Chetiar next to a human body shredded to strings of meat. There was no mistaking the adventure jacket on the disfigured dead body. Suketu Prashad. They had dragged the old man behind a car till most of his flesh was stripped away from his bones. Virat bit down a wave of disgust and rage. No, not the old man, not him! This was no way for the old soldier to go. He remembered the care and the enthusiasm the old man had showed in helping him heal his bullet-ridden body. Virat's heart ached at the flood of memories from the farm. Underneath the image were the following words. We are just around the corner. P.S. We killed the horses too. Have you finished reading your text, old man? Who is it from? That doctor slut you left my mother for? I'm not fucking going anywhere, man. You are a fucking bastard. I'm calling mother, Praveen said. He seemed unsteady on his feet. The young man had clearly injected his first dose for the day. Shut up, Praveen. I don't think you have a choice. There are people coming to kill us. And I'm your best chance to stay alive, Virat said. No sooner had he finished 
the roaring engines of two jeeps shattered the sleepy ambience of the town. Come, Virat said, rushing towards the gypsy. Maruti Gypsy was a gazelle, paws length away from the deadly moors of the jeeps racing behind it. The lighter chassis kept Virat's ride just out of the grasp of the two vehicles. But if you listened to Praveen scream in the passenger seat, you would think they had already been boarded by a horde of barbarians. You're going to get us killed. You're going to get us killed. I'm fucked. Why did I listen to you? Why, 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 why did I listen to you? Praveen raged against the screaming wind buffeting the gypsy. Virat didn't have time to attend to his son's histrionics. He was focused on the badly maintained road ahead, full of curves, broken safety treatments, and trees encroaching into optimal cornering spots. It was like a nightmare where you were naked in public and fire ants were crawling up your ass. He didn't have time to deal with the overwhelming grief that was gnawing at his heart. When he first saw the photo, his rage and sadness were focused on what the syndicate had done to poor Suketu Prasad. It was almost as if he was not surprised by the sight of Chetiar's decapitated head. Virat hated to admit it, but he was clearly not expecting Chetiar to make it out alive. He had anticipated no other outcome for his dearest friend. Initially, Virat's anger was directed towards Chetiar for getting himself killed. Then, that anger gave way to a raging torrent of sorrow for his lost mate. But this was not the right time or place to dissolve in the ocean of misery. Virat buried that aching feeling in the depths of his consciousness like he buried bodies, deep and without any hope of discovery. Praveen continued screaming and wailing as shots rang and spanked off the gypsy. It left ragged dents in its wake and slowly chipped away at the physical integrity of the vehicle. Virat's excellent control of the gypsy and the zigzag driving technique he employed was the only reason why their tires weren't shredded. Virat watched his pursuers weave in and out of his sight in the rear view and side mirrors. In spite of the perilous situation he found himself in, he was focused and breathing calmly. Virat felt the fear, but he used the gnawing tension to analyze the situation and craft a kill plan. Just like a human being, a vehicle had vulnerable spots and flaws. Virat knew this because an understanding of motor engineering was essential to planting car bombs that delivered clean results. Some of the Jeep models were heavy, unwieldy beasts, 
and Virat could see how the swerving corners that lay ahead of them could be used to exacerbate those weaknesses and fulfill his destructive intentions. Virat turned and fed the loop of the steering to the left with the finesse of a Japanese swordsmith crafting a samurai sword, dodging a rattling shower of bullets in the process. He made the gypsy hug the leftmost edge of the road as he eased on the pedal. The eyes of the driver in the jeep right behind him lit up. A smile appeared on his pockmarked face. He followed Virat's suit and mimicked his action while speeding up. Gotcha, motherfucker, he said. Get the guns ready, boys. Virat pulled his gun out from his leather gun holster and pressed it against his left thigh. Then he stepped on the pedal and accelerated. There was a bulbous tree root extending its unwelcome expanse into the weather-beaten asphalt and Virat intentionally swerved in the last minute to avoid it. The obstruction, which was too large for even the treads of the jeep, appeared in the rival driver's line of sight in the last minute. He was caught in two minds as he raced the wheels over it at the same time as trying to swerve away from it. Virat took a deep breath, clutched his gun, turned and pointed it at the driver's side of the positionally compromised jeep. Two perfectly placed shots cracked the windshield and killed someone in the back seat. Spraying blood further compromised the driver's visibility as the vehicle plunged its twisted right tyre into a large porthole. For a second, the driver assumed he was the one Virat had shot and he panicked. That is all it took, a confusing maelstrom that barely lasted for seconds, created by a series of perfectly sequenced events which led to poor driving strategies and even worse safety outcomes. The jeep flipped and slammed on its side, shattering bones and breaking necks and killing two more of the inhabitants on the spot. Vidat turned his attention back to the road in one smooth swiveling motion, like a perfect glass of scotch swimming across your tongue. The final jeep in the convoy swerved around the twisted shell of the vehicle and continued following Vidat. One more to go, Vidat thought. Oh, fuck, 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 I peed my pants, oh, I'm wet, oh. Praveen offered uselessly. Wait till I make you shit your pants, Virat said. The ride is not over, son. I'm not your fucking son, Praveen said, as a few harmless shots from a handgun clanged against the frame of the gypsy. Virat continued driving the vehicle in a haphazard vector, dangerously evading obstacles in the last second, including speeding vehicles from the opposite direction. But the jeep followed like it was tethered to its prey. Virat noted that this driver was a professional, unlike the previous charioteer he had dispatched. A man in a denim shirt and pants, wearing a bright red alligator leather belt featuring a large bullhead belt buckle, poked his head and torso out of the rear right seat of the remaining jeep. He had an automatic rifle in his hand. A non-stop barrage of shrapnel tore up the gypsy. 
all of Virat's expertise in defensive driving and his attempts to trick the jeep into flipping off obstacles failed. The rear tyres were shot to shreds and the horrible squeals emanating from the torn rubber matched Praveen's howls of terror. A rumbling sound came alive in the distance. A thrumming herald of terror and violence speeding in the direction of the two vehicles engaged in a deadly game of cat and mouse. Virat's gypsy lost its momentum as the rim and the axle sparked against the black surface of the road. More gun-toting enemies emerged out of the windows of the jeep. Death was not far now, unless the roaring sounds which was growing louder by the minute brought with it a host of angels who were hell-bent on protecting Virat and his son. They were angels of a different kind. Tattooed, muscled men with big bushy beards, riding iron steeds. The unmistakable roar of dozens of Harley Davidsons filled the air. Fat boys and soft tails and sportsters and diners and V-rods thundered into view. The sight of chrome and black leather enveloping the jeep filled Virat's heart with joy. Who are they? Are they here to kill us too? Praveen asked, strands of spittle hanging from his mouth, his face awash with tears. That, my son, is the cavalry, Virat said, as he eased the gypsy into the curb on the left. Like an army of metal and Stygian locusts, the motorcycle gang surrounded the jeep, pumping bullets into its interior from glocks and shotguns. The jeep tried to speed off, but the souped-up cruisers stayed on it like a pack of hunters determined to acquire their prized trophy. Finally, the jeep's dead driver ran the vehicle off the road, carrying within it the bullet-ridden bodies of several of the syndicate's top gunmen. The jeep slammed into a large rock, flipped up and forward, and landed on its roof with a loud crash. The bloodied bodies were further peppered with shattered glass and ragdolled against the insides of the jeep. One of the motorcyclists rode closer to the damaged vehicle. He primed a grenade and rolled it lovingly towards the side of the upturned vehicle that housed the fuel tank. As he rode back to join his brethren, the grenade exploded, compromising the fuel chamber. Fire wreathed the metal coffin as its occupiers, some of whom were alive, screamed till their vocal cords burned off. The lead motorcyclist, who was dressed in a raven black pair of jeans and leather vest, sported a ginormous grey beard and an orange turban. He rode up to Virat and Praveen and beamed a friendly smile. We were right on time, eh, maestro? 
You wear Sartaj. And you are as deadly inefficient as I always remember you to be. Sartaj extended a tattooed muscly arm over the handlebars and Virat shook it. Virat pulled back his arms and waved at the rest of the gang. Thank you, boys. Virat said to Sartaj, Once again, I thank you. I am glad I let your boss know well in advance of my arrival. Without your iron cavalry, my son and I would have been toast. No mention, maestro. We all owe you a big one. Besides, you can thank the boss yourself. Sartaj said. A black van came racing in from the distance and braked hard right next to the trio. He is eagerly waiting to see you, Sartaj Singh said, pointing to the van. Me too, Virat said with a smile. Pastor Matthew Theragan was a tall, wiry man whose eyes still contained the menace of the past. The notorious ex-motorcycle gang leader wrapped his tattooed arms around Virat Nariman. Then it was his wife Mahi's turn. She was physically the exact opposite of her soulmate. Short and stocky, she had a smile that could brighten the darkest den. Welcome to the Empire of Grace, Brother Virat, the pastor said as he swept his hand gracefully to showcase the three buildings in the compound. A small church and two long rectangular single-storied buildings painted white. One served as a de-addiction centre and the other was a homeless shelter. Mahi, the pastor's Sikh partner, smiled beatifically at Virat, as if she had just been reunited with a long-lost brother. Both husband and wife had kept their respective faiths and practiced the finest morals of both great religions to the best of their ability. They dedicated their lives to the service of others. The pastor was of the opinion that this was the best way to wash away the sins of the past. Behind Virat, the thirty or so motorcyclists revved the engines to show their appreciation. Virat embraced the pastor once again. You saved our lives. I didn't want to drag you back into a world you left. But I had no choice. You are the only one whom I can entrust my son with. I might be out of the game, and it is true that these days I serve the good Lord and his subjects. But I am not of the opinion that kind gestures alone can save humanity. Sometimes, to preserve the good souls, you have to take some evil souls, the pastor said. My men mostly transport medicines and essentials on their iron steeds these days. But if the need arises, they can also pull out sword-off shotguns from their saddlebags. I saw them in action, sharp as ever, Virat said. Your son is like my son, Virat, the pastor said with a smile. 
Mahi placed a reassuring arm on Virat's shoulders. We will look after him, Viru. Virat turned to his right to find Praveen had gone walkabout. When he looked over his shoulder, he found the young man wandering amongst the parked motorcycles, checking out their mechanical brilliance. You know the only reason the lads are allowing him to touch those motorcycles is because he is your son, the pastor said with a laugh. Yes, Virat said, joining in on the laughter. The derelict shack was located on the notorious Highway 85, the road that took the most number of lives in India. Parts of the windy asphalt track wound around mountains like a serpent before plunging down into heavily forested valleys. Presently, a black Volvo station wagon was traversing the treacherous route like a black panther on the hunt. Calls of primitive animals rang through the canopy, expressing disdain for the car trespassing on their domain. The station wagon once belonged to a funeral home, which had made modifications to extend the rear cabin to accommodate longer coffins. It was only appropriate that its second owner was a man who regularly sent business to funeral homes around the country. He was simply known as Nishajar in the business, the night creature who had piled bodies upon bodies for criminal organizations in the subcontinent for the last three decades. The mafia was not his only client. He had just come back from Sri Lanka after committing at least 40 bodies to mass graves for the ruling government. The Nishajar craved variety, and he knew he was going to get to sink his talons into something really juicy when he parked his black funereal car in front of the dilapidated wooden shack. Three Mercedes cars were parked in front of it. Men in printed shirts and jeans roamed the perimeter with machine guns. The Nishachar stepped out of the car and breathed in the moist air of the forest. He stepped forward and let two men pat down his lean, five-foot-ten body. They ran their hands over his left titanium knee and his scarred skin with some concern. You did not survive in this business for three decades without accumulating a fair amount of battle scars. Bone replacements, fused fractures, grafted skin, digits restored to their original condition thanks to plastic surgery. The Nishachar was the closest one could come to becoming Frankenstein. The two men inspecting him stood up and studied his face. They saw the face of death staring back at them. His fair skin, decorated with peppery stubbles, and his midnight black pupils made him look like someone who had stepped out of a 1970s French noir movie. The men waved him on and the Nishachar climbed the rickety stairs of the shack to enter its shadowed innards. 
The building was once a Department of Forestry storage space, now reclaimed by the forest and the elements. The sight of a table and two chairs greeted the Nishachar. A man swathed in shadows was seated in one of the chairs. Sit, he said to the Nishachar. The hitman obliged. The man pushed a photo and a check towards the hired killer. The hitman's eyes widened when he saw the number on the check. He drooled when he saw whose photo it was. I take it there has been a fair amount of professional rivalry between the two of you in the preceding decades. I understand that you have lost some lucrative contracts because of this man. The man covered in shadows could have been the child of darkness, for he spoke with the assurance of one who had been birthed into its treacherous arms. The Nishajal, a man of few words, did not intend to change that habit for the shadowy creature in front of him. He just nodded. I am of the belief that the journey is more important than the destination. The man, seated across from the Nishachar, said, You understand what I am getting at? The man said. The Nishachar nodded again. A faint sliver of light fell on the man's chest as he moved forward in his seat. The Nishachar observed that his client was wearing an expensive Italian suit and he smelled like herbal tea. There were emperors and then there were discreet entities that controlled them like puppets. People who crafted structures of power that only existed for show. Their real purpose masked by layers of deception. The Nishajar instinctually understood that this man belonged to that class of entities. Puppeteers, shadow masters, power brokers. The man let out a deep sigh and followed it with a few deep inhalations and exhalations. I am about to lose my patience with my own people and take things into my own hands. But that will be the equivalent of Shiva's dance of destruction. We don't want that. Not yet. So I am looking for someone methodical to work the beat and help me get rid of this trash. An angry finger landed on the photograph of Virat Meriman. Understood, the Nishajar said. I will be methodical as always, and I will only strike when the time is perfect. The contract killer got up from the chair and turned to exit the shack. I can tell you are a true professional. You didn't ask who I am. The man in the shadow said. I know who you are, the Nishajar said, and he sensed the man obscured by darkness tense up in his seat. You are the devil, the hitman said.
The pastor had a concerned look on his face as he scrutinized the photo on Virat's phone. People used to think we were a violent lot, huh, brother Virat? He said, handing back the phone to Virat. Virat nodded as he accepted the phone. He had destroyed the SIM and the phone right after he received the photo and the accompanying message. Now that the dead bodies of the pursuers were buried under canola fields and the wrecked vehicles had been crushed into cubes of steel at the local wrecking yard, the loop was hopefully closed. Virat's tormentors couldn't possibly trace him and his son to the pastor's sanctuary. But it paid to be extra wary because the syndicate was involved. Virat couldn't afford to be reckless or slip up anymore. He didn't want one more person to die for his sins. Sartaj Singh, the motorcyclist who had led the gang's rescue effort, came into the room with glasses of salt lessee. He placed them on the table and stepped back, crossing his giant muscular arms across his barrel chest. Tattoos of multicolored snakes came alive as his muscles twitched. Virat was not fooled by the warm welcome he received or the glowing response to his request to offer refuge to Praveen. He knew that in his line of work, everything was a business transaction. All favours were paid for in blood. Sartaj looks after the gang these days. I am but a nominal head. Like I said to you before, we have ceased all our smuggling operations. But should you need us to back you up on anything? The pastor said. No, I can only accept your offer to treat my son and to be his guardian. Beyond that, I will not compromise the safety of your wonderful family or your men. You saw what they did to the people who helped me. I have placed you in enough danger already. The pastor chuckled. Do you think Chetiar's family will retaliate? Sartaj asked. I intend to find this out in a few days, Virat said. Virat turned his attention to the pastor. I'm serious about not compromising your safety. The pastor threw a small plastic bag of white crystals on the table. Our lives have already been compromised by this. Our safety is already forfeit for the stance we have taken against drug trafficking. The pastor stood up from his chair. He towered over Virat as he looked him straight in the eyes. The pastor placed both his hands on the table and growled. Who do you think produces and sells this shit in this region? Who do you think is responsible for the plight of the gibbering, weeping boys and girls in my dormitory? Virat shifted in his chair as he took in the information. You didn't see the bullet holes sprayed onto our walls because I got the men to paint over it. Who do you think does all the drive-by shootings in this region? The pastor continued. I have lost three men to these vile bastards and God knows how many addicts. Virat, you are not putting us in danger. You and your son are in the hotbed of danger, the pastor said before sitting down again. 
Virat was hoping that whatever option was placed before him was of a defensive nature. That was his plan all along. To get Praveen to the safe refuge and guard him till the pastor healed him and decided to move him to somewhere safer. Maybe even get Praveen a new passport and a new identity. It was all over for Virat, but Praveen was still young. The pastor had contacts in the Vori, the Russian mafia. Maybe his son could have a fresh chance at life in Moscow. Virad would be the watchdog, guarding the gates till Praveen's safety was assured. That was his preference. But if they demanded that he needed to go hunting, he was not in a position to refuse. I will help your son, and I will look after the future of your son. If you take care of the syndicate's drug manufacturing unit in our district. Virat sighed and joined his hands in front of him on the table. Ah, tell me about this place, Virat said. You know you don't have a choice in this matter, Virat said to Praveen. They were facing off against each other inside one of the consultation rooms in Pastor Matthew's rehab clinic. You can't make me do this, you bastard, Praveen said angrily. I know I can't, but you have no choice, because if I am gone, then there will be no one to look after your affairs, Vidat said. I am mother, I don't need you, Praveen said haughtily. She has not been picking my calls for a few weeks, so maybe she's overseas, but when she gets back, I will tell her that you are hassling me, that you kidnapped me. Virat put his muscly arms on his hip and looked down at the white tiles on the floor. He took a deep breath before he responded. Your mother is dead, and the people who killed her are coming to kill both of us. Praveen slumped into the leather chair reserved for doctors visiting the clinic. No, 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 he muttered. What people? You killed her. You killed her just like you killed Anya. Suddenly, Praveen leapt from the chair. He grabbed a ballpoint pen from a nearby table and rushed at his father with the makeshift weapon held up. Virat did not move. Praveen stabbed Virat's chest with the plastic object, which promptly broke in two. Praveen cried as he jabbed the damaged half of the pen into his father's body. After a dozen or so blunt strikes, he fell to the floor panting and lay there drooling and wailing softly in a weakened state. You don't even have the energy to kill a man. You hate with all your heart, Virat said, as he bent down and placed a hand on Praveen's heaving chest. Virat proceeded to tell his son the true reason for Anya's death and the shocking sight he saw at their family home. Praveen moaned as if his body was being torn asunder when Virat described the final state of his mother's body. You did this. You did this, 
he said, squirming on the floor. If motivation is what you're looking for, then consider this. If you get better, you will have the strength to kill me. A man you hold responsible for the death of your mother and your sister. Virat said as he stood up. In fact, I will let you kill me. If you surprise us all with your inner strength. A strength I know you have. Virat said, extending a hand. Praveen sat up and wiped his tears. After considering the offer for a while, he grabbed onto his father's hand and pulled himself up. They faced off again. The anger in Praveen's eyes, a harbinger of all that would come to pass. Virat's end would be at the hands of his son. Virat smiled wryly and then exited the room. Pastor Matthew Tharagan, who was waiting outside, nodded at Virat. Virat responded in kind and said, He is all yours. Virat stood underneath the shade of an aging tree in the orchard grounds attached to a temple, watching the funeral rites from the distance. He cut a lonely figure far away from the inconsolable crowds as Chetiar's body was committed to the flames. The wind carried the sounds of Sanskrit chants and distressing wails to Virat's ears. His dear friend of many years, the Lion of Bandra, the Chennai king of Smuggler's Town, was now a charred mass of ash and bones. He watched motionlessly as the pyre transformed into a bed of cinders. He was preparing to turn around to leave when he saw Chetiar's son dressed in just a dhoti walking towards him. His face was covered in sacred ash and sweat and tears. Virat waited. My condolences, Nilesh, Virat said when the forty-year-old man, who was a spitting image of his father, stopped in front of him. He was balding, had a portly frame, and his facial features were soft. But his eyes exuded a ruthlessness which announced that you underestimated this man at your own peril. You know, Vidad Pai, my siblings want your head on a platter, Nilesh said, turning around and gazing at his younger sister and brother, who were weeping uncontrollably in the distance. Virat nodded. I can understand why they would feel so. I am sorry that... He began to say when Nilesh cut him off. They are not like my father. They don't understand the value of loyalty and friendship. I do. I remember what you have done for my family. You are your father's son, Virat said. But here's the thing, Virat. There are parts of me that are superior to my father, Nilesh said. He started pacing back and forth as Virat looked on. He had gotten softer and reduced the profile and the size of our business. Like a lot of crime families, he decided not to compete with the syndicate. To let them grow unchallenged. 
not thinking that one day we would become their bitches. We gave up territories when they asked us to take our business elsewhere. We paid them taxes that were unfair to us. We made compromises that were inimical to our friends. Your father had his reasons. Virat interjected. Not sound reasons, Virat Bhai, Nilesh said, raising his voice to counter Virat's argument. He stopped pacing and fixed Virat with a steely gaze. I will take revenge for what's happened. Of this, you can be assured, Virat said. Nilesh walked up to Virat and looked him in the eye. You have balls, Virat Bhai. I commend you for that. Why else would you turn up to a place where people are screaming for your head? Nilesh chuckled and patted Virat on the shoulder. He then walked over to the tree, underneath whose shade they stood, and placed a hand on its trunk. I have told the temple committee that owns this land that this tree is old and rotting from the inside. It's been here for too long. Time for it to go, Nilesh said. Like me, Virat said with a sigh. Not you, Virat Bhai, Nilesh said with a wry smile. What is the line from the Bible? There is a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Nilesh walked up to Virat and shook his hands. It will be time to kill soon, Virat Pai. Nilesh pulled back his hand, turned around and walked away from the hitman. As he departed, the new emperor of Chetiar's crime empire shouted, Keep me posted on what's going on. I will, Virat responded. The Nishajar had parked his car next to a burial ground on the side of the highway to take a break from the long drive. He was on a journey to fulfil the instructions delivered to him in that dilapidated shack in the middle of the forest. Savour the journey was the directive, so the Nishajar made a quick call on who he needed to hurt to leave a dent in Virat's psyche. He was leaning against his Volvo, smoking his favourite brand of beady and savouring the golden dawn that spilled across a shrubland, when two young men with machetes decided to jump him. Give me the fucking car keys, man, the buck-toothed kid said. Yeah, uh, do as he says, his companion said less convincingly. The hitman kept smoking pretending to be oblivious to the threats. The buck-toothed kid slammed the machete into the car's door, rending its beautifully polished paint job. 
Now he had the Nishachar's attention. The killer threw the beady away and turned to inspect the damage. He then spoke to the reluctant accomplice of the brat who had damaged his car. I'm going to make you a deal. It's a one-time offer. Your chipmunk friend here is going to die. But I will let you live. If you play soccer with me, after I have dealt with him. The kid did not know what to say. He looked at his friend and then back at the Nishachar. He saw shoals of dark energy swim in the murderer's eyes. He realized that there was darkness in the world and then there was the ink that crafted that gloom. This man was a creation of that primordial element. The scared kid nodded in agreement. The buck-toothed kid peed in his pants. After he had shot the wannabe carjacker, the Nishachar used the machete that lay next to the limb body to sever his head. He picked up the bloody trophy and walked with it for some distance before planting it on the dry soil. The killer smiled and surveyed the surroundings. When he was satisfied with his assessment, he turned to the kid who was alive and said, You see those trees over there? That will be the goalpost. Let's play. On his flight back from Chetiar's funeral, he slipped into a nightmare-ridden sleep. A creature with glowing red eyes resembling a bat that walked upright shadowed his walk towards the edge of a cliff. When he got there, Virat gazed upon the surface of a turbulent ocean, dark as the storm-cloud-ridden skies above it. The creature had crept up right behind him. He could feel its putrid breath on the nape of his neck. Jump, it said. So he did. The drive back to the pastor's sanctuary was long. More remnants of the past bored into Virat's thoughts. Ravina, Nirmala, Anya, Suketu Prashad, Chettiar. He felt the stares of their ghosts on the back of his head. I may be joining you soon, Virat said to the imagined spirits haunting the interior of the car. There were, of course, no ghost passengers in the car. Just a heavy pall of anxiety. Virat was worried. Would the pastor be successful in helping Praveen get rid of his addiction? Could he ensure safe passage for his son across the border? Would Virat be alive long enough to see his final wish fulfilled? When Virat arrived at the sanctuary, he rushed in to check on his son. Praveen was sleeping on a bed in a fetal position. He looked exhausted. A drip was feeding him vital medication to help him through the difficult initial phases of withdrawal. 
Virat remembered the pastor's words. It will get worse before it gets better. So be patient. Be brave. Virat stroked his son's forehead lovingly. He couldn't remember when he had done that previously. Virat was not a good father. And with every act of domestic violence, he drove his wife and children away from him. Only Anya was forgiving of his unforgivable sins. Praveen, not so much. Virat pulled up a stool and sat next to the bed. He settled into a comfortable position and sighed. Then, as if he was reading a children's book to his son, he opened his heart. He talked about his horrible childhood, Uncle Arjun handing him the keys to a violent kingdom, how he met Ravina and his history of violence as a hitman. You are right to want to kill me. I deserve it, Virat said at the end. I just hope you find the strength to kick this habit so you can be strong enough to wield a gun to finish the job. While Praveen looked like he was asleep, he was in fact awake and listening to the confession of a monster he had hated all his life. He wanted to get better, get stronger and slay this monster like those knights that slayed dragons. But he didn't like his chances. He was struggling to banish his addiction. Its death grip was so strong, every moment felt like a struggle to swim to the surface of a pool filled with black tar. Praveen thought he had heard his father cry, but he dismissed it as his mind playing tricks on him as the medication dripped into his veins. Sleep was a welcome escape from the torturous tug of war in his soul. Praveen broke out of the sanctuary just before sunrise. He didn't feel confident stealing one of the heavier Harleys, so he jacked the small dirt bike which belonged to one of the chefs who serviced the homeless shelter. He had fought the demon in his soul with determination for several days, but eventually the gnawing hunger got to him. He was ready to give in to temptation. Praveen knew the easiest way to get a quick fix was to return to the drug den where his father had found him. He rode in the muted light of early dawn, enjoying the cool wind buffeting his hair. Soon he would be able to inhale sweet vapours that will fill his blood with fire and ice. When he reached the den, an ambulance was parked up front. The paramedic, who was attending to the overdosed kid, the day his father dragged him into the gypsy, was leaning against the ambulance, enjoying a cigarette. Praveen parked the bike and strode past him without acknowledging his presence. You heading in there to get yourself killed? The paramedic asked. Praveen scoffed. I came to pick up a dead kid. 
but I have room for one more. I'm happy to wait for you. Praveen showed him the middle finger as he walked on. I remember you and your father from the other day, the paramedic said. Praveen turned around and stormed in the direction of the paramedic, anger writ large on his face. He's not my father, he's a fucking monster, Praveen said, getting up close and personal with the man. The paramedic threw his cigarette away and said, I saw the concern and sadness in that man you called a monster, when he mistook the patient I was looking after for you, his dearest son. He pushed his chest against Praveen's face and walked him back. Kid, I see a lot of gung-ho dickwad teenagers like you who think the world is black and white. You think you deserve to be the center of attention in a world that has gone to hell. I got news for you. You are part of the system just like everybody else, and the sooner you learn to be flexible about your circumstances, the better it will be for you. And you could start with flushing down some of those shitty thoughts filling up your brain. Like the fact that you think your father doesn't love you. Now, I don't know what he's done, but I refuse to believe that man has only wronged you. Find what is right with the cards that you're dealt with. And play the long game. Don't end up in a morgue before your time, kid. Praveen looked flustered as he stepped back and surveyed his surroundings. The dilapidated joint, just like its transient pill-popping occupants, was a monument to decay. If he stayed on, he would become part of its rot and demise. The paramedic's words stung him. He no longer felt the impulse to drown his pain in the miasma offered by drugs. For now, anyways. The need would return. It would conquer him again. He would make the same trip. Did his father love him? Was that man capable of acts of affection, given his violent history? Sure, he was trying to be a responsible father recently, but how much of that was an act? Was the paramedic right about his worldview? Praveen knew the answers could not be found in the hallucinogenic crystals offered up by the drug den. For now, he would have to return to his treatment. He gave the paramedic an apologetic nod and then jumped on the dirt bike to head back to the sanctuary. Uncle Idea, Virat's guru, was used to seeing blurred shapes over the plastic bump that was the mouthpiece linking him to the oxygen tanks. Usually, these shapes resolved into nothingness. Shadows or fractal manifestations of light dictated by the movement of the sun across the sky. For a dying man, these were valued consolations. When pain and laboured breathing are your constant companions... Shadowy manifestations are like angels. But this new darkness creeping into the corner of his vision was not angelic. It was a fallen creature caressing its gun. Uncle Idea removed his mask. 
It's you, Nishachar. Is that what they still call you these days? He said. Yes. You gave me that name, Guru. I am very protective of it. The Nishajar said. I had a feeling you would come for me. The Nishajar sighed in response. <coughs> are you... Are you going to kill Virat? Uncle Arya asked. The Nishachar nodded as he sat on the bed. A chill spread through the old man's body. He had always felt that in the proximity of one of his favourite students. <sighs> I suppose uh, there is no other way, Uncle Arya said. I am afraid so, the Nishachar said as he slowly unplugged the cables and tubes on the array of medical equipment that surrounded the old man. There is only one entry point, a heavily guarded gatehouse. The other three sides of the warehouse are surrounded by swampland. There are a few tiny islands on the swamp, all heavily mined. Sartaj Singh explained, as Pastor Matthew and Virat surveyed the syndicate's drug manufacturing facility on Google Maps. Let's say we take out all the guards on the outer perimeter. That gives ample warning to the gunmen inside, Sartaj continued. They will need a substantial fuel source, to maintain a large production facility like this one, Virat observed. I know what you're thinking, Virat Bhai. The syndicate has got that covered too. While they have supplied electricity to the premises, they know how vulnerable the facility can be to saboteurs who might try to get their hands on the grid. Sartaj began saying. Petrol? Diesel? The pastor interrupted. Sartaj shook his head. They don't let fuel tankers into the compound. The pastor sighed and shook his head disappointedly. They have a gas pipeline that is mostly underground, drawn direct from the Chhattispur refinery, Sartaj said. Why did you say mostly? Virat asked. Here, at the rightmost point, on the front boundary wall, there is a conduit junction where the pipe briefly surfaces to be able to better link to the facility, Sartaj said, pointing at a black shape on the map. But there is a guard tower close to the wall, overlooking the spot, which houses a sniper waiting to pick off any pests, Virat said with a smile. Sartaj nodded. The pastor made a sound. What are we going to do, Virat Bhai? Sartaj said, with a frustrated look on his face. A half-assed attack damaging the facade of this esteemed institution is not what we are looking for. We are going to burn this thing to the ground, Virat said. The pastor nodded in agreement. Can your contact 
get us the blueprints for the gas pipeline layout within the warehouse as well? Virat asked. Uh, yes, why? Sartaj asked. I know a man who likes to blow up things, Virat said. Hmm. Uh, they killed the horses? Leduvnaik tried to express his incredulity through a mouthful of his favourite delicacy. Vidat nodded and smacked his lips at the same time. Bastards, Vidaik said, rubbing crumbs of his palms. He was seated on a milestone marker on the side of a highway, next to his parked Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Panel Van. Virat had just finished recounting the events of the past month and his initial thoughts on the plan to attack the syndicate's warehouse. Vinayak had gone through an entire packet of ladoos during the duration of the tale. The look on his face indicated that he had enough details to proceed to the recommendation phase. He got up, picked and devoured tiny morsels of ladoo clinging to his shirt as he approached his van. Did you find anything on Pepe? Virat asked. Not yet, but I am close. This is not the first time I have been asked to hack the accounts of syndicate members. But to get to the top, I have to dig deeper. It's only been a week since you made the request, boss. Be patient, Vidaik said. He opened the side door to reveal a host of gleaming steel cabinets and electronics including military-grade scanners and surveillance equipment. He opened a tiny panel and pressed a button. Cabinet walls parted to reveal cases full of gleaming guns, MP5s, FNFLs, G3s, AR-15s, RPG-7s, Uzis, Remingtons, Glocks, all neatly arrayed in rule-inducing rows, underlit by blue LEDs. Nice, Virat said with a smile. Don't be a stranger, Virubai. Come inside, Minayak said. Virat stepped into the van and the door closed behind him automatically. The van, which was air-conditioned, provided a respite from the hot afternoon sun they had endured moments ago. Can you organize the vehicle? Virat asked as he sank into a comfy leather chair. The automated one? Sure. They conducted a Navy trial in Noida a few months ago, and I broke into the garage at night and scanned the automation systems of the self-driving car. Vinayak said with a smile, mightily amused with himself. I don't have time for you to build an automated vehicle for me. We are go-go-go tomorrow evening, Vidat said. Well, Ledu said, and we will have to break into the garage of a certain Punjabi real estate baron, a hundred case from here. But that would mean the rates double. Naturally, Virat said. Vinayak guffawed. About the gas supply plumbing, Vinayak said, playing with the Swiss army knife. What about it, Virat said. There are these Chinese probes 
the sights of little goalies used to map pipes in their strategically important installations. They are used to check for surveillance bugs or damage caused by saboteurs. It can propel itself through the pipes and get to where you want it to go, Vinayak said. And you can rig it to explode? Virat inquired. It was Vinayak's turn to say, Naturally. Alright, let's do some gun shopping, Virat said with a twinkle in his eye. You are a superstitious man, aren't you? Virat said as he watched Ledu Vinayak ring a tiny prayer bell and bless the Porsche interior of the Mercedes van with incense sticks. Its scented white trails caressed the leather trimmings, the beeping instruments and the metal surfaces of several weapons. The vehicle was their command centre for the evening the home base from where they would launch remote attacks to decimate the syndicate's drug manufacturing facility. Virat didn't blame the man for being superstitious. Such was the complexity of what they were attempting. He mentally checked off the steps they had to accomplish to successfully complete the mission. First up, the guard on the tower overlooking the insertion point for the probe had to be eliminated. The sniper rifle, fitted with a silencer, would still make a substantial sound. So the pastor's men would need to roar past the entrance of the warehouse on their Harleys to mask the noise. Virat would then take out the camera pointing directly at the conduit junction where the gas pipeline entered the building with a well-placed shot. With the prying eyes of the gunman and the camera eliminated, Sartaj Singh and another member of the motorcycle gang would insert the probe into the pipeline with a custom device Vinayak had designed for them. Once this was accomplished, Vinayak would remotely drive the automated vehicle loaded with explosives into the front gate, taking out the guards and decimating the entrance. This would grant Virat and team access to the complex should the probe fail to work. They would have to get their hands dirty and burn the whole thing to the ground themselves. However, if Vinayak is able to guide the probe to a previously designated strategic point within the building and detonate the bomb. Boom! One of the largest drug factories in the subcontinent would be reduced to ash within seconds. Virat frowned as he considered the steps. All of this sounded good on paper. There was room for so much to go wrong. Make sure you share your blessings on that, Virat said sarcastically to Vinayak, pointing at the sniper rifle. The evening sky was a raging inferno, a photographer's wet dream. Let's do this, Virat said into his mouthpiece as he lay prone on a hilltop not far from the warehouse. The factory was located at the fringes of the town near a marshy tract of land, bordering a shanty town which housed poor labourers. 
The slum sprawled away from the steaming bogs and the drooping foliage of wetland trees like a quilt made from odd cuts of filthy fabric. The large steel-framed warehouse, which looked completely out of place, was set at a distance from the surrounding houses made of misshapen mud bricks, asbestos, rotting wood and filthy plastic cladding. According to Vinayak, luckily, the homes were far enough from the facility, thereby minimizing damage to their structural integrity from multiple explosions. I don't want innocent people dying, Virat had insisted. The only other oddity in this godforsaken place was the beautifully constructed road, built by the syndicate to ferry in raw materials and ferry out the drugs. Virat waited patiently on the hilltop overlooking the facility for three sets of radio responses as he readied the rifle. The weapon in question was a modernized Russian 8.6mm VSV-338 with a range of 1,500 meters and a one minute of angle accuracy. Virat had used several amazing sniper rifles over the years but he loved and cherished a manually operated rotary bolt-action rifle the most. I'm good to go, starting the car now, Vinayak said. My men are ready to ride by, the pastor said. I have ready the probe injector, Sartaj said. Once the three messages were received at Virat's end, the hitman popped the five-round cartridge in and scoped the targets. First, the man dressed in a green camouflage outfit, located on the only guard tower close to the front boundary wall. Virat then panned the scope to the camera angled on the spot where the gas pipeline was exposed. Virat quickly glanced the guards roving the compound on foot. He counted four up front, including the gunman in the cramped guardhouse adjoining the gate. No doubt there will be more inside, Virat thought. The Harleys roared in the distance, and the sound grew in intensity as the bikes approached the road that snaked past the warehouse entrance. Virat observed the guards turn in the direction of the sound with a concerned look on their faces. He pulled the bolt forward and then back down in an arc. The silent zero harvester high bore suppressor, which Leduvinaik talked non-stop about for 15 minutes straight, would do its best to muffle the sound. But Virat needed the pastor's Harleys to help him out. The motorcycles roared past the front entrance. The guards tensed and moved up to check out the intruders. Virat pulled the trigger. The guard on the tower twitched and fell where he stood. The bolt was pulled up in an arc and then backwards to eject the casing. Virat then deployed the bolt to pump the bullet into the firing chamber. The camera was now in his crosshairs. He took a small breath in and exhaled slowly into the trigger pull. The camera splintered and dangled from its perch. Virat watched through the scope as Sartaj and another bikey prowled along the front wall of the compound to get to the conduit junction. The scope turned to the gate, where the guards looked on with concern at the bikes that were now speeding away into the distance. 
The thugs watched on, shaking their heads, wondering what that was all about. Sartaj and his assistant were far away from their prying gaze and immune to discovery by the guard on the tower or the camera. When he was in position, Sartaj and his partner deployed the probe injector, which looked like a large metal syringe. The men placed the end of the wide metal tip onto the pipe and flicked on a few switches on its side. Uh, is my baby working? Vinayak inquired. He was seated in his van about half a kilometre away from Virat's location. I think so. How far away is the car? Virat asked. If I were Sartaj and Co, I would get out of there like my ass was on fire. Vinayak said, manoeuvring the joysticks on the large control pad he was using to remotely control the automated vehicle packed with explosives. Very poetic. Virat said with a smile as he watched on. Sartaj lifted up the injector and flashed a thumbs up in Virat's direction. Sartaj has bailed, Virat said. Acknowledged, Vinayak said. You know, I was wondering, why do you need the car if you're using the probe to blow up the warehouse? Vinayak asked. I want to be able to get into the compound and finish the job myself. If your amazing Chinese tech doesn't work, Virat said. What? When have I sold you a dud? Vinayak sounded hurt. Sorry, bud, but I like to be prepared for all eventualities, Virat said. He heard Vinayak snort and displeasure on his earpiece. Happy to prove you wrong, boss, Vinayak said. More than happy to eat my own words, Virat said with a chuckle. Virat could hear the car now. The BMW iNext purred as it hurtled towards the gate of the drug factory. Five, four, three. Vinayak counted down as he watched the camera feed from the front grille of the car. Two, one. The car crashed into the gate at full speed. The impact of the car severely compromised the structural integrity of the gate and the adjacent guardhouse. But the vehicle did not explode. The guard trapped within the damaged guardhouse shouted for help. The gunmen inside the compound rushed towards the gate. Fuck! Fucking fucker! Vinayak said over the radio feed. What's wrong? Virat asked. Alarm bells were triggered within the factory. Virat knew they had a short window of time before reinforcements arrived. What do I do? Virat screamed into his mouthpiece. I'm working on the remote trigger. Bear with me, Vinayak said. Virat sprang up from his prone position and ran down the hill in the direction of the factory. What now? Virat said. I think... The car exploded. The detonation disintegrated the gate.
sending a wash of flames and shrapnel towards the entrance of the factory. All the guards caught in the maelstrom were reduced to a mass of charred flesh in an instant. The guardhouse crumpled like it was made of paper, and the guard seated within disgorged his blood and internal organs onto the shattered glass facade. Big cracks resembling the feet of demonic birds arced their way through the front wall. In one vulnerable spot, the barrier fell inwards, leaving a gap in the wall that allowed easy access to the compound. Shabash Vinayak, Virat said into his mouthpiece, Time to trigger the probe. Virat could hear the cheers of the other members of his team on the radio waves. Uh, premature celebrations, guys, Vinayak said. What now? Virat asked. The scanner tells me that the probe has reached its destination, but uh, I am unable to detonate the device. I need to be closer to the factory to activate it. How close? Virat inquired. From just inside the wall, maybe? Vinayak said. Virat sighed. Drive towards me, Ledoux, he said. Virat was now facing the damaged entrance to the factory, which featured disintegrated metal and damaged masonry swathed in a blanket of fire. He raised the rifle scope to eye level, and he took out three guards in succession as he walked towards the gate. Virat could hear the sound of the Mercedes van speeding up behind him. More guards spilled out from the building. Some had guns. Some held machetes. Vinayak's van braked right next to Virat, and he handed the remote trigger to the hitman from the driver's side window. How are you going to do this? Vinayak asked. The old-fashioned way. Virat said. Virat drew his Heckler & Koch P-30L fitted with a custom compensator. He cradled the gun close to his body, lifted the sight to eye level and walked through the gap in the wall. The P-30L was a thing of beauty. While the Picatinny rail, moulded into the front of the frame, was designed for easy mounting of accessories, it gave the handgun the aesthetic appearance of a weapon forged by the god of war. The sight of Virat's tall, muscular frame, dressed in a black t-shirt and combat cargo pants, wielding a superior combat weapon, sent waves of terror through the hearts of the syndicate's guards, even though they outnumbered him ten to one. It resulted in misfires or poorly aimed shots directed at the hitman. A few bullets bust past his head, but Virat was unharmed in the initial onslaught of fire. My turn, Virat said. In quick succession, headshots bloomed everywhere, dropping men like they were insects crashing against an invisible wall of electricity. A mini-inferno which raged in the aftermath of the detonation and the shimmering heat radiating from the exploded car transformed Virat into a phantom from the pits of hell. 
A bullet grazed Vidat's shoulder and claimed a chunk of flesh, before a second one slammed straight into the Kevlar plate in his chest. It forced him onto one knee. Vidat bit down on his lips and thumped the bulletproof vest laid underneath his shirt a few times. Then he took in a series of deep breaths, hyperoxygenating his blood. He mouthed as he let the pain wash over him. He inhaled sharply and focused his mind on the present. Come on, he said, before thumbing the ambidextrous magazine release lever to eject the used cartridge and pop in a new one. He stood up and transitioned into a combat stance with ease, head upright, feet in a restrained boxer stance, toes pointing at the target, his body leaning slightly forward. The muzzle moved from one target to the other with practiced ease and a bloody massacre unfolded. A ballet of gunfighting quickly culled the herd of thugs from ten to four. The remaining four, carrying bladed weapons, had used Virat's focused attempts at killing the others to get close to him. Virat's training kicked in. Tactical switch. Virat muttered and he holstered his gun and in the same move pulled out a freshly stoned M-Tech Special Ops combat bowie knife. Virat ducked underneath the first machete swinging in his direction and thrust his knife in an upward motion. His forceful stab penetrated the attacker's eye. Virat pulled the knife back and sprung aside just as another machete arced down to slice him open. It missed him and slashed the concrete. Virat landed a powerful sidekick into the belly of the assailant. The precise application of all the power generated by his posterior chain sent the man sprawling backwards. One assailant successfully landed a haymaker and Virat reeled. But before the next punch could find its mark, Virat leapt forward and smashed the man's nose in with the butt of his knife before landing a clean cut across his neck. The man stumbled back, his hands failing to stop the forceful spray of blood shooting out from the wound. Another man who was bent low at his waist charged Vidat. Vidat did not let the man who was attempting to rugby tackle him succeed. The contract killer quickly took aim and threw the blade at the top of the guard's head. The man flopped to the floor, the bowie sticking out of his head like a fork impaled on a piece of fruit. The final enemy... The assailant Virat had kicked and sent sprawling to the ground, had recovered. He had found a gun on the floor and was now pointing it in Virat's direction with a lazy, sideways rapper thug grip. You are going to die, motherfucker, the man said. Amateur, Virat said. As the hapless thug looked on, Virat's right hand procured the gun from his holster in a quick draw move that would have made competitive shooters proud. Virat pulled the trigger before the syndicate goon could even shout out in surprise. Virat quickly surveyed his surroundings, and when he was satisfied with his handiwork, he holstered his gun in a flash. He looked at the warehouse that had ruined the lives of millions of young Indians and raked in massive profits for the syndicate. The unceasing alarms and the crackling of flames formed a perfect backdrop for its imminent demise. He pulled the remote control from his pocket. 
hope that puja of yours actually means something to the gods, Vinayak. Virat's head into the mouthpiece. Virat heard Vinayak pray to Ganesha and Shiva and Durga in his earpiece. Ledu threw in Allah and Jesus for a good measure, hoping to salvage his reputation. Virat smiled as he walked towards the gap in the wall with the intention of exiting the wretched place. And just before he crossed the threshold, he triggered the explosive. Did you see that explosion? Kaboom! Sky high! Sky high! Abhinayak said excitedly, like a young man who had successfully completed his first trip to a brothel. Abhinayak ran around, giving high fives to Virat, the pastor, Sartaj Singh and other members of the Baiki gang. They were celebrating the success of the mission in the sanctuary's canteen. You did it, Abhinayak! Sartaj said cheerfully as he landed some hard thumbs on Vinayak's back. By oath I did good, my Sikh brother from another mother, Vinayak said. Vinayak's large belly, acquired through years of dedicated ledu eating, bounced every time he let out a raucous laugh of joy. The mood in the room was heady and hopeful, and for a while... Everyone forgot about the war they may soon have to wage against the syndicate. The operation had gone off without too many glitches, and there was a good chance they would escape the syndicate's scrutiny. Also, the general consensus was that the syndicate had lost track of Virat. The pastor had asserted that in their hunt for the saboteurs, the syndicate would most likely focus on the bigger players, like, say, Chetiar's family, or one of their many other significant competitors. Yet the fear lingered. The syndicate's playbook was similar to bloody Mexican cartels like the Zetas. They were unpredictable, violent, and extremely dogged. Virat and his team would celebrate tonight, but starting tomorrow, they would have to watch their backs like their lives depended on it. The pastor was of the opinion that they should all hit the mattresses for a few months. Locked down till the stormy aftermath of the hit-and-run operation had dissipated. Vidad, meanwhile, wanted to get his hands on Pepe if the opportunity arose. Vinayak was assisting him in this task, leeching every last cent of Vidat's savings in the process. You have saved a lot of lives, Vidat. I think we have scared them enough to move their operations away from the district. Thank you, the pastor said to Vidat as they watched Vinayak clowning around with the boys. Even Praveen had stepped out of the clinic to celebrate with the gang. How is his treatment going? Vidat asked the pastor. Good, he is showing progress, the pastor said. Sartaj Singh approached both of them and said, I'm going on a beer run, Vidat Bhai. Do you need something? I'm happy with my drink here, Vidat said, lifting up the Jim Beam and Coke blend. I'm good, the pastor said with a smile. 
You are truly amazing, Virat Bhai. I feel blessed to have witnessed the fury of your avatar today. Sartat Singh said, You are not quite bad yourself, Virat said, landing a hard smack on Sartat's arm. We couldn't have done this without you, brother. The pastor joined in on the praise. Sartaj had been with him from the very beginning. He was like a blood brother. Look after yourself and call us if you run into any trouble, the pastor said. I'm going to be fine, Sartaj said as he headed for the exit. Sartaj was riding through the balmy night on his Harley, enjoying the solitude and the sight of the shimmering stars in the heavens. There was no one on the highway at this time of the night. Just a man and his machine merging to become one body and soul as they surfed the black ribbon of asphalt that stretched on endlessly into the horizon. He was miffed at the thought of stopping at the bottle shop and then heading back to the party with cartons of beer. Maybe he could just keep going on his metal beast for miles and miles, to faraway places, to distant shores. Once he got there, he wouldn't stop. He would just keep going and going till the road ended on a promontory. He would drink lots of beer and watch endless ocean sunsets. That wouldn't be such a bad life, Sartaj thought with a smile. He noticed bats flying above him, their silhouetted shapes hiding the stars briefly as they screeched off to their night roost. What he didn't notice was a black Volvo station wagon that was parked innocently on the side of the road, almost made invisible by the fidelity of its paint job with the darkness of the night. The vehicle did not need its headlight to find its prey and it sprung from where it lay dormant like a black panther pouncing on its prey. It sideswiped the back wheel of the motorcycle and brought man and machine down with an ear-piercing shriek, followed by a sickening metallic crunch. Sartaj broke every bone on the left side of his body. Only his head was insulated from the jarring crash by the open-faced helmet. The machine dragged his shattered body along for some distance, trailing sparks, before it came to a stop. Sartaj tasted blood in his mouth. He felt stabbing pain radiating from every cracked bone in his body. He tried to breathe, to pump some oxygen into his system. But he couldn't. His lungs were filling up with blood. He could still move his right arm, so he flapped it like the wing of a wounded bird. There was the sound of leather boots approaching his resting place. He wondered who it was. He wondered if it was an accident, or if the syndicate had already found them.
The Nishachar stopped beside him and sat down on one knee. He gently stroked the sides of Sarthaj's helmet. His eyes were pitch black and did not betray any sense of sympathy. You know, my man, the Celts who lived in France thousands of years ago are meant to have put the heads of their enemies on spikes and displayed it for a long time in their villages to show everyone that they could possess someone's whole being and treat it like a piece of fruit, baking in the afternoon heat for all to see, for all eternity. Power, dominion over those who are inferior to you, he said. Sirthaj tried to say something, but he just gurgled up some blood. I just wanted to give you some context for what I'm about to do to you, Nishajar said, pulling out a machete that was hooked to the back of his jacket. Sirthaj looked back up at the sky, which was now filled with the screeches and calls of bats. There were thousands of them, blocking the divine light of the heavens ushering in the darkness as they embarked on a nocturnal migration to some forsaken province of the night. Moments after Sartaj strolled out of the sanctuary's canteen on a beer run, Virat felt Leduvinayak's chubby hands on his shoulder. We have a hit on Pepe, he said. What? How? Virat asked. You know how everyone thinks the head of the syndicate is completely off the grid and untraceable? Not necessarily true. I present to you the details of a watching brief on our man, Vinayak said smugly. A watching brief meant the law enforcement organization was in the intelligence collection phase and there was no intention or enough evidence to initiate an immediate arrest. At this stage, the organization would track data from travel manifests or CCTV cameras or GPS to keep a tab on the movements of the person of interest. However, they would not have a surveillance team on the ground. Who has a watching brief on our man? Virat asked out of interest. Interpol, Vinayak said. Virat's eyes widened. Vinayak pushed his chest out and strutted around like a rooster. Your man got into the Interpol database. Shabash, Virat said. Uh, there is only one catch. We have to leave now, if you want to put a bullet in his head, Vinayak said. Hmm, Virat said. Where is he? Baudun, Vinayak said. I will brief you on our way there. Uh, it will take us six hours by road, Vinayak began to say. 
for if I am driving. Virat said with a smile, Let's go finish this. Baudhun was once a famous Buddhist pilgrimage center where people who renounced materialism came to meditate in ashrams which were renowned for their adherence to a regime of total silence. Many years ago, a Mumbai-based casino magnate arrived at one such ashram on a 10-day retreat, encouraged by a disturbing bout of nagging by his wife. He had a revelation under one of the people trees as he sat there in a rather awkward-looking Padmasana. What if this could be the home of his dream project, a mecca of gambling and prostitution based around a superbike racing circuit? That was the end of Old Bauthun, where saffron-clad monks, hippies wearing hemp and linen outfits with om plastered all over it, and overweight city dwellers having a midlife crisis roamed its quaint unpaved roads, sipped coffee in its vegan cafes, or browsed trinkets in its street markets. The new Bauthun had skyscrapers, tree-lined boulevards, brothels, three casinos, restaurants owned by TV star chefs, and an artificial beach featuring sand imported from Australia. Pepe Thirimal D'Souza surveyed this vast expanse of progress and excess from his 30th floor suite while eating cornflakes. The body of the young man he had raped and strangled still rested on his bed. The corpse's arms and legs seemed to be at odd angles, giving him the appearance of a mannequin. Manish Chawla, Pepe's trusted bodyguard, looked on like a faithful dog as his master ate his breakfast hungrily. Murder always seemed to bolster Pepe's appetite. Mm, I love fresh raspberries, Pepe said between mouthfuls. Yes, boss, Manish said. The bodyguard had a short buff build. His short cropped hair, neatly trimmed goatee, and well-manicured hands indicated he was a man who always paid attention to the smallest details. Good day for a race, huh? The track is looking stunning today, Pepe said as he gazed over the regal Buddha racetrack. a 4.4-kilometre-long international track, the coiled serpentine form of the circuit, which was the home of superbike racing in India, had a mixture of slow, medium and high-speed corners. It featured eight stands, which gave race fans stunning coverage when the action unfolded on race day. The racing calendar did not kick off for a few months, so right now it was open for the use of rich donors like Pepe.
Bike racing was Pepe's passion, and he made sure he turned up to the track at least once a month to maintain his pitch-perfect record on the leaderboard. He was looking forward to riding the shit out of his Hayabusa as the winds buffeted his Liat 3DF Airfit suit and his custom black helmet, which featured the design of a skull on the faceplate. He had owned the bike for many years now, and it was his pride and joy. The 1340cc liquid-cooled inline four-cylinder engine was tweaked to deliver speeds of 320 kilometers per hour, the original intended speed of the beast, not the stupid 299 kilometers per hour deemed legal by transport regulators around the world. Pepe's cock hardened, and he pressed his eyes close as he imagined tearing up the asphalt. He savoured the daydream for a few minutes, and when his erection died, he opened his eyes and turned towards Manish. Get rid of this, and find me another one for tonight, Pepe said, pointing to the corpse. Manish, who had drugged the young man at one of the local bars and brought him up to the room, grinned. He loved being his boss's hunting dog and his protector. Pepe had found Manish wandering the streets of Panaji in his underwear when he was five years old. He took him in and looked after him like a family member. From his weapon smuggling days to his meteoric rise in the syndicate, Pepe had made sure Manish reaped the benefits of his master's wealth and profile. Manish would die for the man without a second thought. So preying on young men and throwing them at his master's feet for him to devour did not bother him one bit. Pepe raced through the straight stretches and the corners and the chicanes like he was a falcon incarnate. When you raced at Bauthun as an enthusiast, you rode with other similar bikers, and your objective was to clock the best lap times and crack the leaderboard for the day, and maybe even set a record for the month. After an hour's worth of riding, it was clear that no one was going to beat Pepe. While a lot of his fellow riders had rented the bikes from the racing center's rental booth, Pepe owned his souped-up Hayabusa outright. It was maintained by the excellent on-site technicians and ready to be pushed to the extremes each time he visited. Pepe loved that India was one of the last few countries where Hayabusas were sold. Westerners and their bullshit emission standards, he scoffed. The horsepower and the torque generated by his motorcycle sent waves of pleasure through him. The Hayabusa's handling at high speeds was legendary, and as he blitzed past other bikes, he felt pity for the amateurs he had left in his wake. He was tempted to kick some of them off their rides, and he would have done so on another day, but his kill lust had been sated overnight. He always liked to strangle the young men, just as he was about to come, to heighten the state of ecstasy. 
and last night was no exception. Pepe smiled at the thought, but his beautiful reveries were cut short as he heard the unmistakable keening of a Hayabusa behind him. He checked the side mirrors. The motorcyclist catching up to him, dressed in a fitted raven black riding gear and helmet, was riding a white Hayabusa with golden decals. The rider's tall and broad muscular body fit the motorcycle's sizable frame perfectly. Unlike Pepe, who looked like a child seated on a large stallion. There was a whiff of wrongness about the whole thing. Pepe always turned up to Bauthun without his army of protectors because he wanted to slip in quietly, get his murderous business done and slip out without drawing attention to himself. A heady combo of rape, murder and high-speed racing which was his one true private pleasure. There were people in the syndicate that he wanted to hide this matter from because he was not the only predator in the ocean. And there was a certain person he needed to keep in the dark with regards to his persuasions. That person, the devil himself. Pepe would have to take care of him soon. He had killed many kings before to steal their thrones. This would be no different. But first, he was going to teach this new upstart biker a lesson. Pepe sped up along the straight stretch and conquered multiple corners to build some distance between him and his pursuer. Much to his chagrin, the other bike caught up to him easily. Pepe didn't like how this afternoon was panning out. Manish, you watching this? Pepe said into his mouthpiece. I am. Manish responded in Pepe's ear as he tracked the bikes through a sniper rifle scope from the roof of the grandstand. Another reason why Pepe didn't rely on an army to cover his ass. Manish was an ace shooter with a serious bloodlust. Pepe was very proud of this fact and he pitied the racer who was now riding beside him. His pursuer flipped open his visor and looked him in the eye. Those eyes. Pepe recognized them from the surveillance photographs. Shit! Edit it out! Take him out! Pepe screamed into his mouthpiece. Virat was inching close to the monster responsible for the deaths of Anya, Nirmala, Devina, and the old soldier, Suketu Prashad. He was at arm's length from the bastard who would try to steal Praveen from him. For Virat, the thrill of the kill that usually accompanied an endeavour like this was further heightened by the knowledge that the vengeful mission he had set out on many years ago, 
was coming to an end. This is it. This is the kill to end all kills. He would send this man to hell and cross the border with Praveen. The keening engines and the hiss of the tyres skimming the asphalt was the backdrop to the rising wave of hatred that Virat struggled to contain within himself. Virat had spotted a single bodyguard shadowing Pepe throughout the trip, and he thought that was unusual. And it was even more surprising when the short buff fellow disappeared, once Pepe had entered the racing circuit. Pepe was clearly arrogant. He overestimated his ability to hide in the shadows. He thought the world didn't know who he was or where he was. Virat would use Pepe's naivety to his benefit. The bikes were parallel to each other. One kick and Virat could down the weasel before giving him the death he so deserved. Although Virat couldn't see the mob boss's eyes, he could sense the fear in the man's body. He could taste its sickly sweet taste in the air. Virat prepared to smash into the side of the bike. The shot took off Virat's left side mirror. Another one clipped his helmet a few seconds later. Virat was in shock. He slowed the bike and then swept it close to the ground and described figure eights before racing away on a straight stretch trying to catch up to Pepe. Thanks to the wily manoeuvre, the next few shots completely missed Virat. I'm being shot at by a sniper, Virat screamed into his mouthpiece. Vinayak, who was acting as the getaway driver, was parked in the racing centre's car park. He was sipping tea in the driver's seat of his van when the message came through. He spat out a mouthful of hot tea before responding, uh, Shit! Uh, I mean, what? Who is shooting at you, Pai? That is what I need you to find out, Buddhu, Virat said. Virat's mind raced along with his bike. No shots had come his way in the past few minutes. The distance at which the bikes were conquering top speeds and the position of the other viewer stands along the length of the track was clearly obstructing the shooter's view. Based on his location on the racing circuit, Virat estimated that the shooter had most likely set up shop in the grandstand. Search the grandstand, Ledoux, Virat said, hoping he was right. He was still unsure what Vinay could possibly do for him in this situation. But then again, this wasn't the first time the tech genius had saved his ass. Virat made a mental note to give the man something extra before he departed with Praveen. Pepe was getting away. Once the villain completed a lap of the circuit and got to the grandstand, he could easily exit the premises and ride away to freedom via the tunnel that linked the repair pits to the entrance. Virat needed to get to him before that. I've got an idea, Vinayak said. 
Whatever you are going to do, do it fast, Vinat said. Vinay quickly opened the side door of the van and flicked a switch. A steel panel covering one of the mounted shelves parted noiselessly. Vinay quickly scanned the beautiful tools arrayed in neat rows within the shelf. His eyes fell on what he was looking for. My sweetheart, he said involuntarily. Vinayak extracted the object of his affection and exited the van. Vinayak played around with a few buttons and knobs, and then with the concern of a father sending his children off to their very first day in kindy, he deployed one of his valued military acquisitions. A Chengdu Pinyin unmanned aerial vehicle. A compact drone with a 5km transmission range, extended flight time, active rotor cooling for its six propellers, and light but strong airframe. His little toy was just what the occasion called for. Looks like I'm going to save you yet again, Viradpai, Vinayak said. And while it was true that he charged the man an arm and a leg for his services... He did hold a certain affection in his heart for the contract killer. Vinayak meant it when he called Vidat, Bhai. The UAV rose up in the air, buzzing like a giant prehistoric insect, and flew towards the grandstand. Vinayak couldn't wait to deploy the projectile electric shock bolts that hugged the belly of the unit like a quiver full of pulsing arrows. <laughs> Having lost Pepe briefly when he came under fire, Virat was finally catching up to his quarry. But there was no cause for celebration. By Virat's calculations, his helpless body would be gracing the scope of the sniper's rifle in a matter of moments. Vinayak, any luck? Virat inquired. I have deployed a drone and it's scanning the grandstand, but I can't find him, Vinayak said. I need your useless piece of junk too. Virat began saying, when Vinayak interrupted him and said, Hey, do you know how many gigapixels? I don't care. Find him now. Virat shouted into the mouthpiece. This was it. Virat thought Pepe had underestimated him. But it was his turn to eat humble pie. Virat steeled himself as he rode up to Pepe's bike, certain that a bullet was going to pulp his head at any moment. It was now or never. Virat decided to sideswipe Pepe's bike in a dangerous move that had very little chance of success. Pepe was no slouch. He was a skilled rider. He had proved elusive and tough to chase down. Taking him down with stunt bike maneuvers, no matter how inventive they were, was not going to be easy. I still can't find him, 
and Vinayak said into Vidat's earpiece. Manish loved this moment. The moment when a man's head appeared in the crosshairs of his rifle. Transcendence is achieved when someone's life is concentrated at the point of intersection of the two perpendicular lines in a gun sight. This was his belief. Manish savoured the sight of Virat's helmet through his scope. He licked his lips in anticipation as he prepared to pull the trigger. Three, two, Manish took in a deep breath and then exhaled into the trigger pull. Ow! It felt like a bee sting at first, and Manish expressed annoyance at the sensation. He was irritated that this minor disturbance had drawn him away from the kill shot. Then, just as he was returning his focus back to the rifle, an electric pulse of 50,000 volts and a few milliamps, which lasted for five seconds, jolted his nervous system. Manish juddered and jerked and emptied his bowel and his bladder at the same time. The rifle went limp in his hand as white froth spilled out of his mouth. Vinayak watched the bolt electrocute Manish with a great deal of satisfaction on the 4K quality feed delivered to the screen on the drone's remote control. Virat swung his bike sideways to wipe out the rear end of Pepe's bike, but his arch enemy evaded the attempt with ease. Virat nearly lost control as his tyres wobbled on the red and white corner strip. He somehow regained stability and raced after Pepe, this time tearing up after the Hayabusa along a tight hairpin. Next came a small straight stretch of the track which quickly transformed into a sweeper. This particular sweeper was an epic long corner that tested the skills of the best superbike pros in the world at such high speeds. This was Virat's golden chance. As if to confirm his decision, Vinayak's voice crackled to life in Virat's earpiece. I got him, Bhai. That was all he needed to hear. Virat accelerated slightly as he entered the sweeper, his front tyre almost kissing Pepe's rear tyre. If he didn't finish him off now, Pepe would exit the sweeper, hit the long straight section and head straight for the main entrance. It would be a nightmare to find and kill him in public, in the heart of the tourist traps in Baudhun. Virat remembered Anya's severed head in the bin. He remembered the sickening display Pepe had prepared for him in the dining room of his ex-wife's house. He remembered the desecration of Nirmala's dead body. He remembered the cruelties inflicted on Ravina by the syndicate's thugs. The bikes exited the sweeper. With a final burst of speed, Virat positioned himself parallel to Pepe. 
Just as Pepe turned to smile at him haughtily, Virat kicked and destabilized his arch enemy's bike before crashing into him sideways. Both bikes toppled sideways and dragged the riders through the grassy runoff areas and the gravel traps, churning up a storm of dust and debris. Virat's left shoulder dislocated on impact and he screamed in pain as the heavy motorcycle dragged him for a fair distance before crashing into Pepe's bike. Luckily, the large frame of the Hayabusa shielded Virat's body from the collision. Virat gathered his senses before pulling his left foot from under the machine. Then he stood up. A sharp pain shot up his leg when he put weight on the ankle that was trapped under the bike. He was certain he had done some damage to it. He took in deep breaths to oxygenate his blood and let the body regulate the pain. He pulled his helmet off with his right hand and dropped it on the floor. He cursed through gritted teeth as he proceeded to put his injured shoulder back in its socket. The resulting agony felt like someone had dug a knife in his shoulder blades and was fiddling around with it. Few more deep breaths and he recovered from the shock of the torment. That arm will need to be in a sling for a few weeks. Needless to say, this was not the best time to nurse a handicap. Virat looked ahead and saw a severely injured Pepe trying to crawl away from his downed bike. One of the other bikers using the circuit had stopped to check on both of them. I think the ambulance will be here in a few minutes. Uh, do you need any help, man? Are you okay? The old man with a head full of silver hair and a hawk-like nose said to Virat. Get lost, Virat said to him. The biker now saw that the man whose welfare he was inquiring about had produced a length of piano wire from his pocket. He looked into Virat's eyes and saw the colour of death in his pupils. Blood drained from his face and without a second thought, the man jumped back on his bike and sped away. The hitman pulled out the garrote from his pocket and walked towards Pepe. Pepe had parted with his helmet and was now mouthing obscenities as he clutched handfuls of grass to facilitate his forward propulsion. He didn't dare turn back. He was certain Manish was going to finish off Virat in a few moments. He just needed to buy time. Come on, come on, you can do this. You can do this. You are a survivor. You have lived through worse, Pepe said. Then... He felt the cold kiss of the cord around his neck and heard Virat's angry voice. I will make you a couple of promises. This is going to hurt. And your head will be separated from your body. Virat pulled the wire back and tightened it with his mighty grip. This is for the ones I love. The ones that haunt me like ghosts even in my waking hours, Virat said. Pepe began croaking and choking and mouthing indecipherable words. 
It sounded like he was saying, I, 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 not the real one. Whatever that meant, Vidar thought. The garrote dug in and slowly sliced in through skin and vein and muscle and bone. Blood spurted on the turf and turned it into a miniature crimson forest. Pepe shuddered and shivered and shat his pants, and Virad relished every last twitch of Pepe's body. Virad had almost severed Pepe's head when his victim's mobile phone started ringing. It was incessant. Initially, Virat ignored the noisy phone, as he did not want anything to distract him from the pleasure of ending Pepe's life. A man who had gifted him so much misery. But after a while, something pricked at his senses. Something told him the call was meant for him. Virat released the tension on the wire and looked down at the bloody head that flopped onto the floor. He spat on it for a good measure. He could hear an ambulance and a fire engine sent by the track officials howl in the distance. They would be here in a few minutes. Virat pulled out the phone from Pepe's pocket and answered it. The voice on the phone was calm and soft-spoken. You know it, Art. The devil has many names and many forms. The man you have killed is but a puppet. A poorly constructed one, as I have come to realize over the last few months. But he served as a good decoy. Who are you? Vidat asked. I am the puppet master. I am the true architect of the many cruelties my organization has heaped on you, Vidat. A cold sensation assailed Vidat's forehead. I want to thank you for taking out the trash for me. It was time Pepe stopped being the face of my mighty empire, the man said. This was one of the few times in his life that Virat had actually felt the cold hands of fear wrap around his spine. You know my parents named me Amun. Means peace, as you know. But I am no purveyor of peace. I leave death in my wake, and to that end, I had sent a particularly vicious dog to visit your dear, sick, frail uncle. I am told he was transformed into a pile of ash, and his sacred remains were flushed down a filthy public toilet. Or was it a toilet in a train? I can't remember. Either way, it was filthy. Shit and flies and piss and all, the man said. Virat screamed into the phone in rage. Virat, you have caused us immeasurable damage over the last few years. And with this latest stunt of yours, 
Our losses are incredible. That's right. We know. We see and hear everything. We are the oracles of misery. The man continued. Virat screamed some more. He felt like a fool, like a failure. His dreams of putting an end to the nightmare shattered into a thousand pieces. It is clear that my men are incapable of burying you in the ground. So I am going to take charge now. Virat paced around like a caged animal as he listened to the illuminations of the true kingpin behind the syndicate. Amen Godwane. I want you to remember that name. That which is the answer to this long pilgrimage of revenge you have been on. I have butchered every thug you have sent to kill me. I have dismantled every part of your organization. I will find you as well, and I will part your head from your shoulder like I did to Pepe. I like your bravado, Vidat, and I would be a fool to dismiss your threats. But here's the thing. You are a bull in a china shop. I am the viper that hides in the dry leaves, waiting to pump venom into my victims. While you were busy blowing up my business... I have been slowly and methodically extinguishing your loved ones, your support systems. And to this end, allow me to surprise you once again. Look to the east, my friend. Look towards the car park. The last of your crutches is about to go up in flames. And Virad looked. Before Virat could utter a word of warning in his mouthpiece, an explosion blossomed in the distance. The bomb sent Vinayak's black van rocketing ten feet up in the air and tore Ladu's body into pieces. The secondary explosion from the weapons stored in the vehicle sent shrapnels in multiple directions killing three more people in the reception area of the superbike circuit. I am coming to the pastor's sanctuary, Vidat. Wait for me with your soldiers. This is the final battle of Kurukshetra, where the righteous will triumph over those who are evil. And you will realize that you have got your definitions of good and evil, all mixed up. I am going to kill your son in front of your eyes. Then I will kill your friends who ride those stupid motorcycles. And finally, I will bury you alive in a coffin full of scorpions. The caller hung up. The red and blue flashing lights of the ambulance and the fire engine limbed Virat's distraught face. He felt like a tiny boat in a raging ocean with no land in sight.
Vidant's left hand was in a cloth sling as he drove one-handed for hours in a painkiller haze. When he arrived at the pastor's compound, just after 4.30 in the afternoon, he was greeted by a gory display that made his stomach turn. Virat stared in horror at Sartaj's head stuck on a pike, planted in front of the sanctuary's iron gates. The pastor and his wife were sitting at the foot of the morbid installation. The bikers encircled them, their heads bowed mournfully. It was a silent funereal circle, reminiscent of a medieval painting. Virat exited the vehicle and joined the mourners. After a while, Vidat said, They're coming for us tonight. The pastor slowly stood up, anger writ large on his face. The bikers took the cue and moved back. The pastor's wife still sat on the ground, weeping. What happened, Vidat? The pastor inquired. Vidat explained the circumstances surrounding his injured hand and foot the sudden appearance of Amin Godwane, and most pertinently, the sad news of Leduvinaik's passing. What are we going to do? The pastor asked. You should leave with your people. Vidat began saying, That would be running and hiding, and you know they will hunt us down no matter what. Tell me I am wrong, the pastor said. Vidat nodded, you're right. And yes, it is better to stay and fight. The pastor looked at Sartaj's pale head. His dead eyes were staring up at the sky, and his mouth was framed in a painful expression. He suffered, the pastor said. Then he looked down at his wife. Now she is suffering. Sartaj was like a son to her. Virat cast a sad glance at the pastor's wife and sighed. Then he scanned the sorrowful faces around him. Today we have lost a brave and loyal ally. Our friend, a brother, taken by deceit, slain by cowards. The same enemy will be here by nightfall to finish us. And it is my express wish and your leader's desire to stay back and fight these monsters, Virat said. The bikers straightened their slouched shoulders and listened intently. I have a plan, but I cannot execute it without your help. Everyone nodded determinedly. At this point, Praveen had walked out of the clinic and joined them. He looked at the gory sight fearfully and turned to his father for assurance. I'm assuming you have a bunker here. Virat asked the pastor. Yes, but it wouldn't hold more than 15 people, the pastor said. And I'm hoping this plan of yours doesn't involve hiding in a hole for months. Some key people will need to lay low if we are to succeed in this mission, Virat said, looking at Praveen and then at the pastor's wife. Get me some hay 
rope and metal pipes. Virat said to the bikers, before casting a glance at some of the Harleys in front of the sanctuary. I'm afraid some of those will need to be sacrificed tonight. Virat noticed a group of shepherds commanding a huge tribe of goats, watching them from across the road. How faithful are the locals to you? Virat asked the pastor. Very, said the pastor. My dormitories are crowded with their children seeking treatment for addiction. They will do anything to protect them and us. Good, Virat said. We will need their eyes and ears. Virat waved at the shepherds and they waved back. Virat, what is your plan? The pastor asked. Virat scanned the eager faces around him and then turned to the pastor and said, Before I tell you that, I need to call someone. Godwane watched the fleeting blur of the Badlands from his speeding bends. He knew places like this intimately. He had grown up in a similar part of India. His parents were sharecroppers who ran up debts and were murdered by the goons of loan sharks. The people who killed his parents were rich. The neighbours who betrayed them by showing the machete-wielding thugs their hiding place were poor farmers like them. The incident taught Amun a valuable lesson. There is no point in reserving your compassion for the less fortunate. They were just the same as the cunning wealthy, looking for a chance to prosecute their agenda of betrayal to make a quick buck. The true religion was the cult of the self. Amun believed in fulfilling his ambition at the cost of everything else. Amun's driver had decided to play some old spaghetti western tunes and the cartel boss thought it suited the sights of drought-ridden fields and orchards along the highway. The dry climate had brought poverty to the breadbasket of the country and where there was poverty, there was a strong desire to check out of life. The syndicate was here to lend a helping hand. As far as Amun was concerned, he was doing a social service. His drugs helped ease suffering. He had similar justifications for his previous endeavours. Gun running supported freedom fighters. Smuggling delivered expensive goods to the masses at reasonable rates. Sex trafficking of underage girls fed the needs of animals who would otherwise rampage through the streets, raping and murdering women. Amund was never the villain of the story. That was but a myth crafted by those who misunderstood him. The syndicate was an unheralded Indian business success story. A remarkable act of entrepreneurship yet to be replicated in other industries. A shining example of determination, passion and purpose. Amun should have been lauded. He should have been feted with awards interviewed by TV channels every two days. Books should have been written about his inspiring rise to become one of the most successful business leaders in India. Why then was he denied these accolades? 
because some sought to portray him as a criminal, his activities as illegal. Heartless labels heaped on his achievements by small minds. The blood he had spilled to unify inefficient and unproductive gangs under the banner of the syndicate would have filled the Arabian Sea many times over. Yet all he received for his hard work was ingratitude. He couldn't stand the insults, so he decided to operate from the shadows. For a while, the other puppets, including the incompetent lunatic Pepe, took over the reins and things seemed to be on the right path. It worked because he was providing the strategy and directions as the puppet master. But this pest Virat appeared on the scene and wreaked havoc. Chaos attracts chaos. And now he had many gangs vying to destabilize the syndicate. Somehow, people developed the impression that Aman Godwani was no longer in the picture. He couldn't complain about that outcome because he had wanted the anonymity. But what he didn't anticipate was that people don't fear what they can't see. Now, he must be seen. They must witness the atrocities he's capable of. And to that end, the full force of the syndicate would in the first instance be brought to bear upon Virat and his lackeys. Once he was done burying their corpses, he would deal with the other troublemakers. Aman imagined that in the future, when he looks back at this period, he would surmise, the syndicate was having some troubles, that's all, like an unexpected afternoon hailstorm that wrecks parked cars. But its foundations were solid, its might unblemished, its vengeful presence, omnipresent and omnipotent, and it showed its enduring might by crushing its enemy overnight in an awesome bloody display of shock and awe. He looked at the fleet of vehicles in front of him and behind him. His best men, armed to the teeth. His horsemen of the apocalypse. Oh, the plight of the hapless few who dared to stir the hornet's nest. Amin smiled at the thought as the vehicle sped towards the pastor's sanctuary. Instead of being stuck in the basement bunker, I could be out there helping you, Praveen protested. I know you can, but I want you to be safe and prepare for our trip across the border once tonight's fireworks are over, Virat said. Praveen looked at his feet in disappointment. The pastor tells me you have made enough progress for us to move on. He thinks the program has given you the resilience to say no, should temptation strike again. Praveen looked up and pursed his lips and nodded. You are addicted to violence the same way I am addicted to drugs, Praveen said, looking accusingly at his father. I am, I suppose, Virat said. But that is exactly what will save us now, no? Praveen said. Virat didn't answer. He looked ashamed. I don't know if I could ever love you or forgive you for what you have done. 
But I understand you. I understand how you became who you are, Praveen said. Virat teared up. I'm glad. Uh, I didn't think it was important for me to be understood. But in these last few months, I have made peace with my nature. And I'm glad you see me for what I am too. Thank you for keeping me alive, Praveen said. You have nothing to thank me for. This is my duty. I love you, son, Vidat said. Praveen bent sideways and picked up his duffel bag. The pastor's wife, who was preparing to enter the bunker, approached them. She placed a hand on Praveen's shoulder and looked at Vidat. I will look after him, Vidat. You make sure my husband and my boys come out of this safe and sound, she said to him. I'll do my best. I promise, Babiji, Vidat said. He looked on as the pastor's wife and Praveen climbed down the stairs and entered the bunker, located in the basement of the clinic. The steel blast-proof door creaked noisily as one of the pastor's helpers closed it shut. Virat watched Praveen's departing figure till he fully disappeared behind the door, knowing fully well that this could be his final glimpse of his son. The last member of his family. Virat didn't want his violent legacy to be continued, but he wanted Praveen to live. So he was going to try darned hard not to die, at least till he got his son to the border. Virat looked at his left hand, which was still in a sling, and at the giant swelling in his left foot. Granted, he was not in the best shape, and their plan to survive the syndicate's upcoming retaliation was on shaky foundations. But he was who he was. He was truly in his element. A shark was the master of turbulent and dangerous waters. That is where it lived, where it hunted, and where it died. Virat had made arrangements for one of the pastor's assistants to take Praveen and the pastor's wife to the border, should he and the others not survive the night. The bunker opened up to a tunnel which extended for nearly a kilometre to the east and offered access to canola fields tended by farmers loyal to the pastor. Virat could proceed with his plans with the knowledge that his son at least had a fighting chance. Better than what Anya and Nirmala and Devina had. The thought made him angry. He could feel the blood boil in his veins. He clenched his fists, trying to contain his outrage. He heard the pastor call out to him. Virat, it's time, brother. Virat couldn't afford to lose his focus. He had to be cool and calculated to pull off this audacious plan. He walked towards the reception area of the clinic, through a series of corridors and rooms. When he reached his destination, he was greeted by the sight of the pastor and the bikers, 
armed and ready, like soldiers waiting for their general's instructions. Virat walked them through the plan again in a calm and methodical fashion. And when he was done, he shook each person's hand and wished them well. He watched them leave the building. When the last person left, he pulled out his wallet and gazed at Anya's photo tearfully. He put the wallet in his back pocket, gathered his weapons load out and exited the building into the arms of the night. His night had begun and he entered its gloom like a man who had mastered its essence. Aman Godwane smoothed down the lapels of his ash-grey Italian suit with delicate sweeps of his open palm before pulling the binoculars out of his pocket. He was standing atop a hill, a kilometre away from the sanctuary, surrounded by his best bodyguards. The spot offered an excellent view of the pastor's compound, where Amun was expecting Virat, the pastor and their men to make their last stand. The three buildings and its grounds were located on the side of a highway which ran through a sparsely populated region. There were no other dwellings for miles in both directions. The emptiness of the vast open land around him was made even more pronounced by the fact that the sanctuary hosted the only source of light in this empire of darkness. What a delightful setting to face up to my enemies, Amun thought. There was a slight chance that Virat and the pastor might not have the courage to stand up to him, that they could have fled in the cover of darkness. It didn't matter. Even if they abandoned their base of operations, Amun was going to personally supervise the destruction of their lair. Virat and Co. had burned down his house. Now it was his turn to extend the same courtesy. Once he had burned the place down to the ground, he would hunt them down without mercy. If the man had any honour, he would rise up to Amun's challenge. In fact, from what he had heard of Vidat, he doubted the man would back down from an old-fashioned fight to death. Well, time to find out the state of play, Amun said to himself. He lifted his night-vision binoculars and glassed the sanctuary. He spotted motorcycles lined up in front of the main building, forming a defensive barrier. In the windows... Silhouetted against the light were dark figures holding long, tubular, metallic shapes. Gunmen guarding the perimeter, Amun thought. Good, you are indeed a son of a gun, Vidat. We are good to go, 
Amin said to one of his guards, who pressed a radio to his mouth and shouted commands. Fifteen vehicles, cars, SUVs and motorcycles emerged from the darkness as they tore down the highway and parked themselves in a neat row facing the compound. Scores of gunmen stepped off the vehicles and took up their positions. Amun would let the artillery do the critical damage before riding his cavalry down there. He just wanted to be there to walk amongst the smoking rubble, to pump bullets into bodies crushed by masonry or half compromised by the shrapnel from his army's guns. He was a finisher. That is what he was always good at. Hire the best people in the business, get them to do the heavy lifting and then waltz in at the last moment and finish the job like a stone-cold closer. Light this shit up, Amin said. His bodyguard transmitted those exact words via the radio. Two men with bazookas climbed up on the roofs of the SUVs and sent shrieking projectiles streaking into the buildings. Explosions smashed the stonework, splintered the woodwork, and crushed the cladding as fire swathed the insides of the building. Multiple detonations compromised the structural integrity of the building, and a rain of debris crashed onto the parked vehicles of the attackers. There was a few seconds of awestruck pause, then all the guns barked in unison. The sounds of the night were silenced by the roar of weapons firing. A wall of bullets crashed against the sanctuary's walls. Sustained salvos crafted holes and turned stone to dust. Wood caught fire and metal structures buckled as a constant unceasing hail of shrapnel tore through the pastor's domain of hope. After a full ten minutes, the arms fell silent. Only the music of destruction competed against a rising wind. Creaking metal, the crackling of fire. A dust cloud slowly began its ascension into the upper atmosphere. Nothing can survive that, boss, one of Amun's bodyguards said. That's the truth right there, son. And you know what I'm thinking? We should do this more often. Amin said without tearing his eyes away from the eyepiece. The cartel boss noted delightfully that the barrier created by the motorcycles were shredded to bits and the gunmen arrayed in front of the building in defensive positions were wiped from the face of the earth. He manipulated the controls on his lens to take a closer look at the bodies of the defenders. He wanted to see if any of them still had their heads intact.
as Amon scanned the debris field, looking for dead bodies, he noted something odd. Amon's smile turned to a frown. Amon Godwane tore his eyes away from the eyepiece of the binoculars. He spat in disgust before glassing the scene of destruction again. In the rubble of the three buildings that had once existed in the pastor's sanctuary, he once again found the signs of Virad Nadiman's deceit. Dummies dressed up in hay and metal pipes, made to look like gunmen guarding the buildings. A wry smile graced Amun's face. An oldie, but goldie, he said. His anger had turned to amusement. Amun had planned for treacheries like this. It was precisely why he was perched on top of a weather-beaten, flat-topped hill, a kilometre away from the kill zone. Ask the men to retreat and tell them to watch their backs, Amun said to his bodyguards. No one responded. Sudish, are you deaf? Convey my message, lazybones, Amun said. Silence. A wind rose up in the valley and journeyed eastwards, caressing the scrubland and the hills that dotted the landscape. Amun felt its cold bite on his skin. That and a tingling sensation which signalled imminent danger to his well-being. Amun turned slowly to find his bodyguards lying on the ground, paralysed. Small needles stuck out of the sides of their necks. The shepherds who were loyal to the pastor were members of the Gumri tribe, whose ancestors had thrived on this land for thousands of years. They had farmed, hunted and domesticated animals successfully to preserve a peaceful way of life. But if war came knocking on their doors, they would use stealth and guerrilla warfare to butcher their enemies and make them rue the day they decided to aggress on the Gumris. A chief weapon of theirs was the blowpipe, which shot poison darts that could incapacitate or kill their enemies. Earlier that day, Virat had requested the shepherds to monitor the movements of strangers crossing into the area. Through a series of vocalizations that was only known to their people, the Gumris had tracked the movement of the fleet of attackers. When they reported the location of Amen Godwane and his posse to Virat, the hitman surprised them by requesting their assistance in eliminating the cartel boss's bodyguards with their ancient weapons. 
silent and deadly. The blowpipes delivered their deadly payload to the vital nerves that saturated the neck region of the protectors. The men did not have a chance, and Amun looked upon their still forms in horror, not knowing what grand machination had felled them where they stood. Soon, beams of light from scores of steel flashlights lit up Amun's petrified face. They flashed in the darkness, like the fiery eyes of hellhounds that yearned to hold his personage in judgment. Out of the darkness and into the field of light cast by the torches, a muscular man emerged. The man had a shaved head and a slight limp, and as he moved closer, Amun noted that his left hand was in a sling. Recognition dawned on him. Virat, Amun said, his voice slightly faltering. Virat Nariman walked up to his nemesis and fixed him with an intense gaze. The radio resting in the hands of one of the fallen bodyguards came alive. Boss, I think we are done here. We are waiting for you to come down and add the finishing touches. Boss? Amun was breathing faster. A tightness gripped his chest. Sweat poured down his forehead and seeped into the expensive Italian silk that adorned his frame. They are looking for you, Amun. You should be down there with them for the mop-up operations, Vidat said. Amun gulped in fear. Slight change of plans, Vidat said. Why don't you get on your binoculars and look back at the sight of your handiwork? Gone. Amun did as he was told. He turned and glassed the wrecked compound. Look at what we are going to do to your army, Vidat said. Amun shifted the lens away from the ruins and towards his armed men laughing and chatting amongst themselves, oblivious to the danger that surrounded them. Amun's lips were parched. He ran his tongue over them to offer some moisture, but his mouth had dried up. A man in a green leather jacket, floral print shirt and jeans was the first to fall. He was followed by another. From the shadowy surroundings of the road, Men with guns rose up from the tall grass, shed their camouflage nets, and fired an unceasing salvo of bullets at Amun's hired goons. Men who belonged to the house of the new Chennai king of Smuggler's Town. 
The man Virat had called before devising the plan was Chetiar's son, Nilesh Chetiar, the new lion of Bandra. A man desirous of revenge for what the syndicate had done to his father. A man who was dreaming big and wanted to take over the operations of the syndicate without the sex and drug trafficking components. Nilesh had jumped at the opportunity, and his desire to put an end to the cartel's reign was made manifest in the massacre that unfolded via Amun's eyepiece. Time had stopped for Amun. Guns popped rhythmically in metallic staccatos that mowed down the armed men who did not get a chance to retaliate. He could follow the traceries of fire as bullets left barrels and ploughed through flesh. This is but a snapshot of what is happening to men loyal to you around the country, Virat said as Amun looked on at the orgy of violence. Amun's soldiers showcased shredded limbs, torn faces and gory torso wounds. Blood sprayed in many directions and created a floating crimson mist that gave the butchery a ritualistic vibe. This is the night you always feared. The night your reign comes to a bloody end. The night a new king is crowned and the body of the former tyrant is offered up to the wolves. Vidat said. Amun tried to say something, but he could only manage a whimper. Talking about wolves, did you know this is one of the largest habitats of the Indian wolf? The drought has left them starving, and I am told they are even feasting on other predators to satiate their burning stomachs, Vidat said. What are you going to do to me? Amun asked in a pleading voice. Are you not another predator, Amun? Virat asked. Two bulky bikers emerged from behind Virat and grabbed Amun's shoulders. They then carried him downhill. Amun let them bear him away. His bravado was shredded to its tiniest atoms. It had dissolved into nothing, and all he felt was the hollow embrace of hopelessness. His feet dragged on the gravel path, over rocks and grass, as he descended the hill. They stopped at the foot of the prominence. A Harley-Davidson was parked in the bushes. The bikers grabbed a length of rope from near the motorcycle and bound Amun tightly, his hands tied firmly behind his back. One end of the rope featured a steel hook which they attached to the back of the motorcycle. They then approached Amun's body which was lying face up 
and took turns spitting on him. This is for our brother Sartaj, they said. It took Virat a few minutes to limp down the hill, and when he arrived, one of the shepherds who had helped kill Aman's bodyguards approached him and nodded. He was dressed in a brown tunic and red turban caked in dust. Thanks for your help, Virat said. The man bowed deeply. The wolves, Virat asked him. There, the man said, pointing to the east, near Shaitan's rock. The beasts tend to congregate there. You cannot miss the place. Three peaks like fingers. Virat heard a scream in the dark from the direction where Amun was resting. Virat thanked the shepherd again and walked towards the source of the scream. The two men who had bound Amun were now speaking to the pastor. The pastor held something bloody in his hand. The pastor turned to Virat and said, I cut off his tongue. I hope you don't mind. Virat nodded respectfully. I am going to take this to my wife, the pastor said, bringing the severed tongue up to Virat's eye level. He is all yours. Virat removed his hand from the sling and moved it to gently gauge its mobility. He grimaced. It still hurt like hell. Ignoring the throbbing hurt, Virat climbed on the motorcycle and started it. He turned around and looked at the squirming, moaning body leashed to the vehicle. Let's go for a ride, my friend, he said. He rode the motorcycle through the bushland, dragging Amun Godwani behind him. He headed towards Shaitan's rock, the headlight piercing the darkness and revealing spindly trees, ancient rocks and the green glowing eyes of night creatures. Amun's struggling anatomy ploughed into the sandy soil and the earth returned the compliment by stripping him of his skin. Canis lupus palipus, the Indian wolf, was smaller than the Himalayan wolf and lacked its luxurious coat. What it lacked in size and strength, it made up in guile and speed. While the creature had been hunted to near extinction in other parts of India, where agrarian ventures conflicted with the laws of the jungle, here in the Badlands, the wolf remained a vicious force of nature. Vinant left Amun's severely wounded body at the base of Shaitan's rock 
which featured three finger-like peaks that pointed accusingly at the night sky. It should have been pointing at the man who lay crying and severely battered at its base. The man who had turned Uncle Idea to ash and disrespected his remains was now covered in wounds and shattered bones poked out of his flesh from being dragged behind the Harley. I wonder if all the souls your ambition laid waste to cried pathetically like this in their final moments. Virad mused aloud. The contract killer breathed in the night air, and along with it the memories of the women who had died for his sins. Even in this painful state, Amun's eyes were searching the surroundings, as if he expected someone to rescue him from this sordid plight. Virat wondered who it was that Amun so eagerly awaited. No one is coming to save you, Amun, Virat said. Virat could hear the padded footfalls of the wolves nearby. Here in the Badlands, there is only the justice of the sharp teeth and vicious crows, Virat said. Amun snivelled. The Indian wolf is a quiet thing, not as showy as its brethren from around the world, Vidat said. We are surrounded by them right now, and yet you wouldn't know. Amun tried to say something on the lines of, please save me. But I can detect their movement and scent, for I am like them. You are not the predator. You are the prey, Amun. Nature has cursed you with the bliss of ignorance. It will serve you well under this night sky, Virat said. Virat climbed back on the motorcycle. He cast a final glance at the author of all his pains. Virat heard a growl in the bushes. He growled back. The creatures responded with a sound that acknowledged Virat's authority, his dominion over the kingdom of death. He rode forwards slowly, so he could savour the sounds of the wolf pack rushing at the helpless villain and feasting on his flesh to satisfy their ravenous desires. The wolves tore at his bloodied body with their sharp fangs and dug their talons into his wounds to scoop out juicy chunks of flesh. The atmosphere was filled with the primal music of snarls and growls and screams. Around the bloody kill floor, in the middle of the arid plains, flowers bloomed on cacti in joyous abundance. They cast their perfume into the air in celebration 
like nocturnal priests of some heathen death cult. Virat relished the sounds and the scent as he rode on in the coolness of the night. On their journey to the border, Virat reflected on the goodbyes they had said earlier that morning, as Praveen expertly steered the Land Rover. The pastor, his wife and the surviving bikers hugged and wished them well in front of the ruined, smoking remains of the sanctuary. Nilesh Chetiar's men had removed the bodies of Amin's foot soldiers and transported them to shallow graves in the middle of nowhere. Before reports of bullet-ridden charred vehicles in front of the ruined compound that were blocking the road reached the police, the pastor and his team had decided to move on to a secret location where they would rebuild their shrine of hope. It is in the mountains, the pastor had said. A place which offers 360-degree views of the surrounding plains and gives us the advantage of altitude. I have been planning this for a long time. The church and the clinic will rise again. And up there, on God's mighty prominence, we will heal and serve people till our final breath. Virat thanked the pastor profusely for the sacrifices he had made for him and his son. We have to thank you for dragging us out of the shadow of the syndicate. And now, in Nilesh Chatiar, we have a great patron and a protector. All thanks to you, brother. Now go. My contact will be waiting for you at Lothi. The pastor had said, placing an affectionate hand on the heads of both Virat and Praveen. Go, brothers, go in peace, and may God look after both of you, he had said, signalling the beginning of an epic journey that would ideally take Virat and his son from India to Russia via Pakistan and Afghanistan. Presently, Virat sighed as he thought about the scope of the journey that lay ahead of them and glanced at Praveen in the driver's seat. Virat had driven for the first hour of their five-hour journey. But then Praveen expressed a desire to drive. The pastor has been teaching me. He said it'll help me focus on something else other than my urges. Praveen had said, he even took me off-road driving. In half a day, I was able to drive up hills without breaking a sweat. Virat was impressed with what he saw. Presently, he said to his son, The pastor has taught you well, my son. This could be my profession, Praveen said. Why not? I mean, I'm stunned at how good you are, Virat said. Praveen turned to smile at him briefly, before turning his attention to the highway, which stretched before them, just beyond a wavering wall of mirage. 
Virat looked at him with pride. Danger will always haunt us till we cross the border. If we are faced with a terrible choice, if you have to choose between my life and yours, I hope you will do the right thing, Vidat said. I'm not sure I understand you, Praveen said. If I ask you to, Vidat hesitated. He took in a deep breath and sighed. What is important is that you go on and meet Pastor Tharagan's contact at the border, no matter what happens to me. I want you to promise me that you will choose your life over mine, should the need arise. But I... Praveen said with the intention of lodging a protest. Virat raised a hand with an air of finality and said, You will do as I say. Yes, father, Praveen said. That was the first time he had used the word, father. Virat smiled to himself. I thought you wanted to kill me, Virat said. Praveen looked at him sternly and a few moments later burst out laughing. Virat joined in on the laughter. A loud explosion interrupted the frivolity as spikes shredded the front tyres of the vehicle. Praveen panicked and tried to straighten the Land Rover, but the wheels locked to the left and caused the back tyres to wobble. Before they knew, the vehicle swerved to the left of the road and rolled down an embankment and came to a halt against a rock the size of a cooking gas cylinder. The front end crumpled slightly on impact and the engine whined painfully. The collision had proved to be a lucky break because beyond the rugged obstruction, the bank of earth peppered with black rocks and dead trees sloped down for miles before plunging into a ravine filled with sun-baked outcrops and skeletal remains of dead cattle. Virat's injured arm had popped out of the socket again, and he was rattled. Virat looked to his right and noted that Praveen was out cold. The teenager had banged his forehead against the steering wheel, and the top of his nose seemed broken. Praveen! Praveen! he called out to his son, as he shook him with his good right hand. Then he noted movement in the rearview mirror. A man was making his way down to the vehicle. Could he be here to help? Virat wondered. As the figure got closer, 
It became clear to Virat that he was looking at the man responsible for their current plight. An old familiar face, a brother-in-arm who Virat had bested on several occasions. The vicious dog that Aman Godwani had referred to. Virat should have known. He grimaced as he continued to shake Praveen. Wake up, son. Wake up. As the Nishachar made his way down the embankment towards his quarry, who was trapped in a damaged vehicle, vultures flew circles in the sky and cast their shadows on the ravine, which hungered for more skeletal offerings. They cawed and screeched as the scarred face of one of the most vicious contract killers in the world peered at Virat through the side window. The Nishachar assessed the shredded front tires and the dent in the bumper and said, I can see my spikes did a number on your hopes and dreams, Mr. Virat Nadiman. A recollection from decades ago. Virat was in his twenties. He was being trained by Uncle Idea in his forest hideout in the art of sharpshooting. They stayed in a hastily crafted hut, which was a puzzle of bamboo and long leaves. Rainy days and cold nights made their presence felt inside and outside the hut. It hardened the bodies and minds of Idea's students. Suffering is an essential ingredient in the creation of the perfect assassin, Idea used to say. There was something else in the remembrance. A man slightly older than Vidart. Another one of Uncle Idea's trainees. He was firing at bottles arranged in a row on a low-hanging branch of a creeper-laden tree. Each time a bullet found its mark and shattered the glass, wild birds cried in alarm from the canopy that blotted out the sky. He's good, isn't he? Vidat said. Perhaps as good as you, Idea said. Virat smiled. I doubt it. Idea patted Virat on the shoulder and returned the smile. What's his name? Virat asked. He has no name, Idea said. 
Oh, does he at least have a story? Virat asked in an incredulous tone. That he does. An interesting one at that. Ah, wait, the tea must be ready. Sit here. I will tell you in a second, Adi said. Virat continued watching the nameless man, engaging in his firing practice. As Uncle Idea poured hot black tea from a utensil bubbling away over a fire pit in front of the hut. Idea handed Virat a small glass before settling down on a rock and sipping the hot beverage. His parents, who were trade union activists, kicked him out of their home when they realized they couldn't curtail his violence towards other children and his unbridled cruelty towards their neighbors' pets. So he wandered the countryside, selling his worst qualities to the highest bidder. Beatings and extortion gigs. Then he decided to graduate to the big league and took on a contract to kill two people who were organizing strikes against an international cool drinks company that was underpaying its workers. His own parents, Idi said. Virat spat out his tea in shock and said, What? Uh, Did he do it? What do you think? Uncle Adi said with a smile, as he gazed at the nameless student. From the look on your face, I think he did butcher and bury his parents. I also think he's well on the way to becoming your favorite. You admire his cruel heart. Vidat said. The young man had stopped firing, and he now strolled towards his spectators. He halted midway, then waved the gun up in the air and challenged Vidat. Best of ten. What do you say, Vidat Nadiman? Vidat accepted his challenge without hesitation, and won effortlessly and he had been doing so against the cold-blooded killer ever since. (coughs) Clients had always preferred Virat for jobs that needed to be done cleanly, which was the case with most contract killings. Uncle Arya had expressed his dismay at his other student being overlooked, who by that stage had gifted himself a suitable name, Nishachar. Nishachar had a reputation for loving cruel acts of butchery a tad too much. So he was only assigned jobs which called for performative acts of extreme violence that served as deterrence. Vidat had always considered himself superior to the likes of psychopaths like Nishachar. But now, as Virat gazed at the scarred face of the man from inside the damaged vehicle which also hosted his injured son, Virat was not feeling so confident. Nishachar clearly had learned to be stealthy and, dare he say, mastered it over the decades. Your friend Sartaj gave me this beautiful mark, Nishajar said, pointing to his face. 
the bluish-pink mark ran diagonally across his countenance, left to right, like a smear of war paint. Good. Now you are ugly inside and out, Vidat said. Great to see you are in good spirits, old friend. And I want to hear your jokes come thick and fast when I carve my name into your face. Nishajar said, opening the car door and dragging Virat out. He punched Virat in the belly, forcing the concussed hitman to exhale and bend down at his waist in pain. Nishajar patted his quarry down thoroughly and extracted two handguns hidden away in Virat's clothing. He flung the weapons into the distance and said, Now we can begin. Nishachar pushed Virat onto the parched soil with the satisfied look of a snake catcher who had defanged a cobra. That is exactly where a dried up piece of shit like you belong, Nishachar said. Virat quickly glanced at Praveen through the open side door. His son was staring into consciousness. Virat tried to get up, only to find Nishachar's boots sink into his chest. He fell on his back, the impact sending streaks of pain up and down his left shoulder. Virat sat up and dragged himself backwards for some distance before popping his shoulder back in again. The attempt was imperfect and it gifted him more pain, but at least it was not hanging loose. Stand up and head that way, Nishajar said pointing to the embankment's sloping path down into the abyss. Virat stood up. His body ached and sharp pangs of agony assailed his injured limbs. The damaged shoulder and feet tormented his mind, dulling his focus on the danger at hand. Virat slapped himself across his face a few times, willing his mental faculties and perceptions to come alive. You are going to throw me down into the ravine, are you? Virat said. How perceptive. You were always a quick thinker, Nishachar responded. Virat walked sideways till he was face to face with the vehicle so he could check on Praveen. His son was still dazed from the effects of the crash. Nishachar placed himself between Virat and the automobile and started walking him downslope. There is only one end to this. You plunging head down into the rocks below. The vultures will strip the meat on your bones in half a day and your skeleton will remain here forever. Enshrined as a mark of failure, Nishachar said. What was it that irked you the most? The fact that I was actually the go-to man for the jobs that required brains? Or that your kills were so messy it drew the attention of the police to some of your clients and got them arrested? If it's advice you're looking for, I'm retired now. I'm thinking of consulting in this space. Although, 
An idiot like you will struggle to understand the finer points of assassin craft. Virat mocked him as he walked backwards. Nishachar rushed forwards and threw a punch at Virat. Virat ducked and the strike missed its mark. You even killed my uncle, our teacher. I suppose I shouldn't expect any better from a man who completed a contract on his own parents, Virat said. Another haymaker was thrown Virat's way, which also missed the mark. But then Nishachar immediately struck out his boots and caught Virat flush in his belly, knocking the wind out of him. Virat reeled and sat on one knee after feeling the painful effect of the attack. He breathed big gulps of air to recover. Nishajar delivered another kick aimed at Virat's head, but this time Virat caught his opponent's leg, placed the ankle in his armpit and rolled with it to the right in an improvised jiu-jitsu footlock, breaking Nishachar's ankle in the process and bringing him down to the ground with a huge thud. Nishachar screamed and lashed out with his good leg, this time catching Virat flush in his face, breaking the hitman's nose. Virat landed hard on the back of his head and he saw stars swimming in his field of vision. Nishachar ignored the devastating pain in his ankle and dragged himself towards Virat. He climbed on top of the hitman who was lying on his back, straddled him with his powerful thighs, rose up and rained a frenzied bout of punches. The powerful blows damaged some of Virat's teeth and crafted hairline fractures in his jaw and orbital bones. Blood seeped out of Virat's mouth and oozed out of big gashes that exposed deeper layers of the skin. A winded Nishachar, whose arms were aching and lungs were burning from the sustained period of physical assault, stopped to take a breather. The searing pain from the ground-and-pound move served to wake up Virat. His face a mask of pain, Virat shrimped sideways and caught Nishachar flush on his jaw with a powerful right-handed strike. Virat then grabbed onto the back of his enemy's neck, pulled him down, and elbowed him so hard it broke his jaw clean. Nishachar rolled away in pain. Virat mustered lagging reserves of strength in his body and sat up to check on Praveen once again. Praveen was now conscious and he stared at Virat with his bloodied face. There was a concerned look in his eyes. Virat smiled at him and nodded. He then turned his attention back to Nishachar. Both combatants took in deep breaths to recover and readied themselves for another round. They then both stood up slowly and painfully and faced off against each other. Nishachar produced a knife from the back of his pants and wielded it menacingly. Virat could hear Praveen start the vehicle. Good boy, try to get away. Virat thought. The vehicle struggled to wake up and when it finally did, 
Virat could hear the back wheels struggling to obey Praveen's attempts to reverse the automobile. Nishajar lunged forward on his good foot, dragging the broken one alongside like an oar. He arced the blade diagonally in a manic series of slashes as Virat backed away to avoid them. Virat finally copped a gash which tore the flesh open from the top of his left shoulder all the way down to his navel. Blood poured out of the groove in his body and saturated his top in moments. Virat ignored the pain as he focused his ears on Praveen's struggle to reverse the vehicle. Forget the vehicle. Run away, kid! Virat wanted to shout out to Praveen. Returning his focus back to Nishachar, Virat bent down, grabbed a handful of dirt and threw it into the villain's eyes. The wily contract killer was clued in on Virat's intentions and he covered his eyes with his forearm just in time. He still copped some particles in his eyes and staggered back in an attempt to clear it. Virat remembered the knife he had strapped to his left lower leg inside his pants. He reached down, only to find it missing from its designated sheath. I must have lost it in the struggle, he thought. Virat decided to take advantage of Nishachar's distracted state as the hitman tried to rub the dirt out of his eyes. Virat rushed forwards in a rugby tackle. His muscular frame crashed into Nishachar's midsection and at that exact time, the psychopath plunged his knife into Virat's back. A painful sensation overwhelmed Virat's senses as he tackled Nishachar to the ground and flopped onto the vile man's torso. Then, a temporary paralysis shut down his body. After taking a few moments to recover from the trauma Virat had unleashed on his core, Nishachar successfully pushed Virat off him. Nishachar stood up, coughing up blood and bile. He looked up at Praveen, who had managed to reverse the vehicle up the slope and back away from the rock it had crashed into. Nishachar's jaw skewed at an impossible angle as he tried to smile at the teenager's pathetic attempts to escape. Yes, try to run, you little rat. Try to run. I am coming for you after I am done with your father, he thought. He turned to look at Virat, who lay at his feet, bruised and bloodied and battered. Virat blinked away the blood which was threatening to cloud his vision. When his eyes finally focused properly, he found Nishachar verbalizing something, which Virat understood as a threat to harm Praveen. Nishachar raised his knife dropped to his knee and slammed it hard just below Virat's sternum. The blade plunged deep into the hitman's entrails. 
Nishachar dragged the weapon downwards, ripping open Virat's belly. He let out a guttural laughter to match Virat's screams. His entire being was devoted to watching his arch-enemy perish at his hands. His undivided focus was geared towards relishing his victim's miserable end. He had finally triumphed over the so-called greatest contract killer in India. That was his crown now. Even as he was drowning in an ocean of pain, Virat called on his mind to check on his son's welfare. He was surprised at what the quick glance to the right revealed. Virat snapped his attention back to the arrogant visage of Nishajar and said, Shame, our teacher is not here to see me kick your ass one last time. Nishachar looked at him quizzically. The cold-blooded murderer had failed to notice that instead of backing the vehicle all the way up to the highway, Praveen had let the automobile roll down the hill towards the two combatants engaged in a mortal struggle. The metal projectile built up speed as it raced down the slope. As he lay on his back dying, Virat coughed up blood and managed one last crimson smile as he invoked his final reserve of strength and planted both his feet on Nishachar. He shoved him backwards onto the path of the uncontrolled vehicle just as it reached them. The bulk of the vehicle smashed into Nishachar's upper body and as he landed sideways, it ran over him and crushed his body. It also ran over Virat's legs, shattering them to a bloody pulp. The vehicle raced downhill and launched itself off the edge and began a speedy freefall into the ravine below. It crashed and produced an almighty explosion which silenced the carrion birds in the sky. Praveen, who had jumped off the driver's seat, just as the vehicle started its destructive descent down the slope and killed his father's attacker, ran down to be near his father, who was in a bad way. Father, he said. Praveen struggled to lift Virat's head up to place it on his lap. He cried hot tears into the hitman's bloodied face. Father, he said tearfully. I'm not sure about your abilities as a driver anymore. Virat said as he tried to smile, but the agony of his mortal wounds won, and all he could manage was a wink to accompany his joke. Praveen cracked a half-smile and tried to wipe the blood away from his father's face. Then his eyes fell on the impossibly wide abdominal wound, and he wailed in misery. 
No, no. Don't cry. Doesn't, doesn't suit you. Virat said, gently slapping Praveen on the cheeks with a bloody hand. Praveen tried to stop, but he failed to curtail the anguish in his soul. Is he dead? Virat asked, trying to lift his head to look in the direction where Nishachar lay. Praveen looked. Nishachar's head was crushed by the underside of the vehicle, and brain matter poured out of it in foamy pink rivulets. His body was a mangled wreck of flesh and bones arranged at impossible angles. Praveen nodded. It's done then, Vidat said. Then he coughed up more blood. <coughs> I, I can't feel anything below my waist. Praveen looked down at his father's legs that were shattered beyond recognition. It's going to be okay, father is all he could manage to say, even though he realized his words didn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense that he grieved for this man. It didn't make any sense that he had killed someone to save him. It didn't make sense that he had finally achieved what he always wanted. To be alone. To be free from the past. Yet, Praveen didn't understand why it hurts so much to say goodbye. Praveen, I'm sorry that your mother and sister are not here for you. It was my... I'm sorry, Vidat said. Father, Praveen began to say something and then stopped. You, Vidat said running his hand over Praveen's hair. I'll be fine, Praveen said. I know, I, I know, Virat responded. Then he became still in his son's arms. Praveen refused to look down at the vacant gaze in Virat's eyes. He declined to look down at his father's bloodied, inert chest. Instead, he gazed at the treetops, where a mighty wind had suddenly picked up. It swayed the branches aggressively before journeying over the yawning chasm that stretched out from the edge of the embankment and travelled eastwards to the dense forest in the distance. Something savage and primal, returning to the wilderness that birthed it. Praveen let his father's body slide to the ground and stood up. 
he wiped his tears with the back of his hand and climbed back up the slope towards the highway. Several years later, The medical devices beeped and trilled rhythmically, and the oxygen pump wheezed terminally in a bare and sad room located in a run-down lodge in Chorbazar. An elderly man lay on a decrepit bed, attached to the array of equipment, a translucent white blanket drawn over his sore-ridden body. His chapped lips muttered incoherent words, and his temple creased and uncreased, as memories assailed his mind, which was in a state of decay. Although most of his faculties were failing him, his hearing was still sharp. And when the young man entered the room, the wily old fox blinked open his eyes. It took him a while to focus his vision. Uncle Arya, the youngster said. It's Praveen. Arya removed his oxygen mask and peered at the face leaning over him. Praveen, the youngster repeated. What? Adi said. I am Virat's son, Praveen said. Ah, mm, you found me, he said, raising his head, before a coughing fit forced him down back onto the filthy pillow. Praveen rubbed Adia's chest in a circular motion. You didn't leave, Adia said after a while. No, I didn't. How did you find me? Some friends helped me out. Hmm, must be your father's friends. Something like that. Uncle Adia studied the walls to the right with its flaky paint and small craters which resembled the surface of a corrupted moon. You figured out the truth, Idy said. I've had lots of spare time to figure things out, Uncle. Father told me everything that happened when I was in the rehab clinic, and what he didn't tell me, I filled the blanks with stories from others, and a curious detail emerged that the great Virat Nariman missed. His habit of calling you before big missions, and every time he was intending to make a life-changing move, brought the syndicate to his doorstep, Praveen said. Adi smiled, as if he had just come across a crude joke scrawled on the shabby wall. Praveen continued, Remember when he tried to escape from India and take Dr. Nirmala along with him to Bali? The syndicate thugs were able to reach the site and kill her and gun down my father because he foolishly trusted you and rang you beforehand to seek your blessings. And what did you do? You told your former employers. I have always been their loyal employee. 
in this business, the hand that feeds you is more sacred than your own family. Loyalty to your brotherhood over loyalty to your blood, Heidi said. And that is why your former student Nishachar spared you? Praveen inquired. Maybe. I would like to think the kid respected his teacher. Because I taught him everything, including the skills that he used to kill your father. I know he died in the process, but my top student bested the great Virat Nariman. Uncle Idea said, You're assuming my father is dead. Praveen said. I know so, Idea said. The man you corrupted died. The man he became in the end? He still lives in my heart, Praveen said, slapping his chest. So, you are here to take your revenge, Idea said. I am, Praveen said. How are you going to do it, I wonder? Will you suffocate me with a pillow or sabotage the medical equipment? Idea said. I'm going to leave you to rot to death of natural causes. Coward, Uncle Idea said. You are not your father's son. I told you about my father. In the end, he was not the abused boy who fell into your vile hands. He was not the youngster you influenced to take up the way of the gun. Hell, he was not even the man whose violent reputation brought you the glory of being one of the greatest assassin trainers in India. In the end, he was a guardian angel to many, including myself. He was an avenger for righteous souls. So, I am my father's son, and I am not going to raise my hand in anger or hate. I will let nature eat away at your body and soul, Praveen said. Bah! You are not Virat's son. You are a weakling. You don't have the balls to do what's necessary. Praveen stood up, gave a respectful nod, and exited the room. Praveen could still hear Uncle Arya calling him a coward from his deathbed, as he descended the rickety stairs. You are a coward! You are a coward! Praveen looked up at the entrance to the room one last time, and then walked into a courtyard decorated with beer bottles and syringes, and the occasional condom. He waved a goodbye to the receptionist, who was reading a porn magazine while seated right below a garlanded photo of Goddess Lakshmi, and exited the building. He stepped onto a busy street thronging with merchants, promoting massive discounts in loud, sing-song tones, and eager shoppers looking to score cheap bargains. He approached a white van, which was parked in front of a textile shop, and climbed into the driver's seat. 
The sign on the van's side panel read, Angel Heart Rescue. Call our human trafficking hotline 25659245, 24 hours a day. Seated on the passenger side, scrolling through her social media feed was a colleague who Praveen had developed some strong feelings for in the last year and a half. He just hadn't worked up the courage to ask her out. The young woman who was the same age as him placed her phone on the dashboard and tapped her watch impatiently. Mr. Driver, I thought I was going to die of old age sitting here waiting for you, Arpida said. I'm sorry, Praveen offered. You can buy me jalebi with the afternoon tea. I prefer that over your soggy sorry, she said, slapping his arm playfully. Where to? Praveen asked. Silapet. There is an illegal brothel located right behind a bakery on Pradhan Street, Arpida said. All right, you call the police. I will make sure you get there in 15 minutes, Praveen said as he stepped on the gas. A memory dawned on him at that exact moment. Praveen and his father, driving to the border before the ill-fated encounter with Nishachar. He had cracked a joke. Praveen couldn't remember what it was. But he remembered his father joining in on the laughter. Praveen smiled at the reminiscence and then let it go. He refocused his attention on the road as the van merged with the traffic and took him on another mission to grant mercy. We expect a lot from our homes. They're more than a place to hang your hat. They're where you try your hand at gardening and new recipes, rest and recharge, work and play. And that's why at HomeAdvisor, we're committed to keeping your home up and running. Whether you need to repair an overloaded appliance or you're looking to create a backyard retreat worthy of a summer staycation, use the HomeAdvisor app day or night and we'll find a local pro to get the job done right. Whatever you need, we'll do everything to fix your everything. Download the HomeAdvisor app today to get started.